welcome to a special episode of James Bond and Friends. This is a spoiler-tastic episode, so warning, if you haven't seen the film yet, please, please, please press pause and come back to us later. Um, just wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping and say that um, we started this post- podcast for a bit of a laugh back in March 2019 to kind of pass the time away for the Bond 25 release date of November. Um, that six months turned into two and a half years. Um, a lot of stuff's happened in between then. Um, so I just want to thank everybody who's joined us on this journey so far, if you listen right from the start or if you found us this week, and for making us the most listened to James podcast in the world, which is awesome. Um, Tuesday's first take no spoiler episode was our most downloaded episode ever. Wow. Um, and now we're going to take the gloves off and talk <laughs> about all the spoilers. Um, so no pressure to everybody today. Um, with that, I'm <clears throat> delighted this week to be joined by... David Lee, Calvin Dyson, Madeline Grant, Sean Longmore, and Dr. Lisa Funnel. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? I'm Calvin Dyson, and I have a YouTube channel where I talk about all things related to Bond, uh, films, books, games, all that stuff. And uh, seen as the theme of this introduction seems to be uh, announcing unpopular Bond films that you're a fan of, uh, I love Moonraker. <laughs> well, firstly, no kink shaming here. I also love Moonraker, and this is a safe space. Um, my name's Madeline Grant. Um, I work at the Daily Telegraph. My day job is the political sketch writer, cooks are kind of making fun of MPs, but I'm a huge Bond fan. I have been all my life, and whenever possible, I try to let I try to get them to let me write about Bond, which they don't always do. But when it happens, it's always it's always very, very, very happy making. Hello, I'm Sean Longmore. I like Moonraker too, so I'm going to think. <laughs> by the time I stop talking, I'm going to think of another one. Um, I'm a graphic designer. Sometimes I make Bond pictures. Sometimes they're a bit pretty. Um, I, I, you know, I really like Quantum of Solace. I'm going to be that guy. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster specializing in gender in James Bond and other action films. I like a spectrum of Bond films, including Quantum of Solace and Moonraker. So I think I'm an excellent company here. And we have a late one to the party, Mr. Ben Williams. Hello. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Ben Williams. I'm a regular contributor for MI6HQ.com and the magazine uh, MI6 Confidential. Excellent. Right. Um, at the beginning of this year, uh, my plan for the pandemic didn't really go very well, and I didn't like get into shape and lose weight and all that stuff that everybody said they were <laughs> going to do. But one thing I did do was give up drinking this year. Um, so you, that's out yeah. the window today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I, th- no. <laughs> I thought we would get started Um Quickly go around the houses, and if everybody wants to give their quick take on where they think this film sits in the Craig era, because I thought that would be a simpler way of looking at it, a um, couple of your best highlights, a couple of things you didn't like, and maybe a little trivia thing you noticed, and then we'll circle back and start pick up the big points. Calvin? Um it, uh, in, in Craig era terms, uh, it's very much in the middle for me. I'm a huge fan of both Casino Royale and Skyfall, in, in the sense that they are both in my like top five of all Bond films. Quantum of Solace and Spectre are right at the very bottom of all 25 for me. Uh, no Time to Die easily sits in the middle of all of that. Uh, I, I, I guess I maybe need to figure out where it sits in relation to a lot of the others now, because I don't have a... As strong a love for it as I have for uh, a couple of the other Craigs. There's a lot in it that I love. Um, you ask about highlights. Uh, for me, potentially, 
the biggest highlight of the entire Craig era was the Cuba sequence in this, uh, which I absolutely tonally was just pitch perfect exactly where I like my Bond films to be in this kind of fantastical, slightly sci-fi, the whole Spectre birthday party for Blofeld that Bond's mm-hmm. infiltrating, three bald guys walking around with a bionic eye on a little tray. Like I was so in love with all of the stuff going on there. The action sequence I thought was fantastic with uh, Bond and Nomi both kind of fighting over who's going to take in this scientist and Anna Diamas was great in that. So that whole big chunk um, mm-hmm. was a major highlight for me. Um, bits that I didn't like, I mean, really, pretty much as soon as they get to Safin's Island at the end, it starts to slowly uh, fall apart until the the very ending, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in more detail. Um, I will say I've seen this film twice at this point, and I was really happy that before my second viewing, I listened to the previous episode of this. Um, And Ben, I'm really happy that you're here because a lot of your comments in particular um, sort of um, brought me up again on the film because I found the ending to be such a such a downer that it was kind of after particularly after the first viewing it's all i could think of and it was all that was kind it was just marring my view of the whole thing and i kind of needed that boost of positivity that you provided in that podcast for my second viewing to kind of go in and be like oh no actually there is an awful lot in here that i actually love but there is just that last half hour is so yeah there's a lot in it that i'm i'm not a fan of but i'm sure we'll um get into it a bit more i'm glad i could lift it up a little bit for you (laughs) Who's going next? I'll go next if you like. Um, <laughs> well, for me, um, I'm not a huge fan of the Craig era in general, I, although I do love, I absolutely adore Casino Royale, and I would say that for me is in the very, very top tier, possibly the top three. So I'm not anti-Craig per se, but I would say it's nowhere near as good as Casino Royale. Um, on the basis of what it does at the end and the way I feel that it very much trashes everything that we've come to know about Bond, Uh everything that is integral to Bond. Um, I would say that even though the first half of the film is the first part of the film, particularly the the pre-title sequence is excellent. The ending, I think, puts it properly in the bottom tier. I'd say it's sloshing around with the bin juice alongside Quantum (laughs) Solace and Spectre. Um, And Skyfall, which I also thoroughly dislike, is probably slightly better than Casino Royale, than um, No Time to Die. Um, Things I liked, uh, I I also loved the Cuba sequence. I I actually really liked Lashana Lynch as the female 007. Um, I was really worried about this character when I heard about it, the way it was trailed before. I was a bit worried that they would make her into a kind of Mary Sue character who, who never puts a foot wrong. And that mm-hmm. she would kind of exist in the film to try to make Bond look stupid and antiquated and not good at his job. But in fact, I really loved the way that they developed the mutual respect for each other, the way they kind of complement each other in the action sequences. It, it reminded me of some of the best pairings of Bond with his more kind of feminist love interests like Wei Lin or um, Pam Bouvier or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the way that she also wasn't totally infallible. You know, she did make mistakes. Um, there's a problem in film sometimes when I think the filmmakers think that the feminist thing to do is to make these flawless characters who are actually really hard for uh, for audiences to relate to. Um, I mean, the worst thing for me, uh, I, I suppose the ending, I mean, as I say, just I think that having Bond develop those kind of attachments, having a, a child and the kind of love of his life. I mean, to me, that just destroys everything that we've come to know of Bond's personality. Um, it reminded me of um, an episode of The Simpsons called The Principal and the Pauper, which is a much hated <laughs> episode in which it turns out that Principal Skinner was a kind of an imposter all along, that he was oh. a different person. And to be honest, I think this is what 
No Time to Die gives us. It gives us a Bond that isn't Bond at all, a Bond who uh, hangs out with Madeleine Swan in her Ikea kitchen and has tweed breakfast scenes, <laughs> and he decides not to save himself because he'll never be able to touch his child again. I mean, uh-huh. and deciding that Madeleine Swan, who's like, I think one of the most wooden and boring Bond girls in the series, is the one that he can't live without. Not Vesper, not Tracy, but Madeleine Swan. You know, this is wrong. This is, Bond should not be doing this. It's not, you know, it's not bloody, it's not daddy daycare. It's not kindergarten cop. Um, The film spends a very long time shouting out to other films, other films in the Bond canon and and saying that that's a kind of respectful acknowledgement of other uh, Bond um, outings. But I would much rather that they had a bit less of the shouty outy stuff and actually had him behaving the way that the Bond would behave uh, compared to all the other Bonds that we've come to know. I agree. <laughs> I, I love bin juice. That's going to be my yeah. new thing. Bin juice. That's awesome. That's actually what I'm drinking today, James. <laughs> times are times are lean, right there. Um, um, I, I I really liked it. I really enjoyed this movie. I've seen it twice now. Um, I saw it the second time. I caught a an IMAX presentation of it. I really enjoyed that. Um, in terms of where it sits in the Craig era, I, I feel like this is a really odd question because tonally it's so different from everything we've seen in the Craig era. Um, it's a bit of an outlier, really. So it's kind of, for me, it's kind of impossible to put in with the rest. That being said, I kind of, they kind of all blur into one for me a little bit anyway. So it's probably towards the higher end of the movies. Um, in terms of what I liked, um, I really like this film from a technical point of view. Um, seeing it in IMAX, I really love the IMAX film sequences. It's only about half an hour of the film, but um, the stuff that kind of goes into the 70 millimeter aspect ratio um, has really stuck with me. That And that's a lot of the Matera stuff and the um, Cuba stuff. The Cuba stuff's fantastic. Paloma's great. Um, and that sequence just looks really good when it's really big um, and quite outstanding. Um, the, te- the technical stuff is what really, really stands out. Um, I love the color grading of it. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's some lots of really vibrant, energetic colors. There's a, there's a, I think actually there's a great energy to the whole film the whole way through. It doesn't, it didn't, to me at least, ever feel like two hours 40. Um, it, it sort of chun- like turns straight through, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, I also really love the score. I really love the sound mix in places. Um, the first time I caught it, I was at the Royal Albert, um, and the sound sort of was, as, as anyone will know who's been there, is it, it's never great in there. But um, the second time I really enjoyed it. I'm really hoping that I can go see a Dolby presentation at some point. Um, but there were lots of little things in there I enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed the title sequence. There's a lot, a lot of the technical stuff. In terms of what I didn't enjoy, it's probably more the story. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think I've said before on these podcasts that I'm never really... I, I don't go into a Bond film for a story. I don't, I'm not really bothered. I'm not, to be perfectly honest, I ha- I'm of that opinion that I, d- I don't really care that they killed James Bond. It kind of worked for me in terms of the film, um, but it doesn't sort of provoke an emotional reaction from me either way. So I guess that's probably the weakest part of it for me. But on the other hand, I do think the script is really sharp and really witty in places, and I really enjoyed that. All right, Lisa off the top rope. <laughs> in terms of my ranking, I'm. everyone knows I don't like Spectre, so Spectre's like, 
at the bottom. Uh, you know, it's Casino Royale, Skyfall, and Quantum of Solace on top of it. So it would probably rank number four on my list. And I feel like the emotional reaction that I had to just watching it, I'm, I'm really trying to push through those emotions and 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 treat this as, as objectively as possible. Um, in terms of highlights, and I don't want to repeat um, what everyone has said, I agree so much with Madeline. Um, and, and her commentary specifically about Madeline Swan. Um, but in terms of highlights, I loved Paloma. I thought that she was a bright spot, uh, when it came to the casting and characterization and the elements that we saw on screen. I loved seeing a woman who, um, had no interest in James Bond sexually. I loved the little play when she was uh, measuring him out and he thought like, what's going on here? Yes. Like, are we going to yes. have sex? And she's like, no, I'm just measuring you. And I also love the end of her action sequence when she drop kicks a dude, rolls on the ground and there's this shot from overhead and she's laying on the ground, grabs the gun and shoots two guys. And I just, I was cheering. I was like, this is what I am here for. She's doing it in a dress. Nothing's falling out. Everything's been, you know, taped properly so we don't get any accidents but to see her be in a sense sort of the sort of the typical traditional bond woman in action i thought was really exciting and then i thought that it they did a really good job with the way that they represented lashana lynch because it cuts to lashana lynch being on her side or on her back shooting as well and I think this is a franchise that has a, a history of hypersexualizing women of color and specifically black women and I feel as though seeing uh Nomi fully dressed in in commando or combat gear, um, not being hypersexualized, but still being quite attractive in her representation. Um, I was really impressed with the steps that they took not to do that. And I have, I mean, I have a lot more to say about her representation. Um, I thought that the dialogue was really good. And I think one of the the lines that I that I picked up on was when uh, Nomi says to Bond, like, Mr. Bond, and he's like, it's Commander Bond and you know it. And as somebody who is frequently um, described by my marital status rather than professional title, I feel like professional women everywhere were like, exactly. Like, <laughs> this is what we have to go through. And I really love what Phoebe, this is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, let's be honest, what she brings to the table and the way that she is able to critique gender conventions and tropes and limitations, flip them on their head and you're sitting there being like, well, yeah, you're supposed to call him commander. Why did you call him Mr. Bond? And that it really isn't appropriate to diminish somebody's uh, standing just because you're trying to take a, a little bit of a dig at them. So I found there were so many little places where I could feel the influence of Phoebe Waller-Bridge and I thought, I see you and you see me and that's exciting. And then from just like a visual thing, I think you know, Sean is definitely right. This is a, there's a lot going on here. I was attracted to the use of the elemental. I mean, in the middle of watching this, I was texting my, one of my writing partners, Klaus Dodds, being like, we need to talk about the elemental because there's a lot here. Whether it's the regendering of water as feminine, which definitely happens, uh, the, the connection between Daniel Craig and the elements of Earth and the way that that is being pushed forward. I also found with the the both the lighting and just sort of the tones of the film, there was a lot of blue. There was a lot of like a burnt orange uh, that was presented. It was presented through the lighting, but it's also presented through the costuming. There's a lot of mirroring of costuming going on here as well, where uh, Nomi and Moneypenny are constantly sort of like in back-to-back -back scenes are dressing in like comparable colors, Bond and Madeline Swan. There's a lot going on there. So I thought that there was a lot going on visually to make these broader statements and connections and to really help push the broader themes and tones and connections along. So those are the things that I liked. 
lowlights. Um, I feel as though, and this goes really to what Madeline was saying, I feel as though the film was really trying to push the point that Dr. Madeline Swan was the best romantic interest for James Bond. And it's something they started in Spectre and I wasn't buying it then. And they really kept pushing it by bringing up both women and the films that they were in. And I felt that that was really thrown in my face, like predominantly throughout the film. Um, Do I think there are redeemable qualities about Madeline Swan? Absolutely. Do I have things to say about her representation as both a daughter and a mother and being defined only in those ways? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's pushing it down. But I did feel as though it was just overplayed. This was overplayed for me. And that leads me to my biggest issue with the film in the second half of the film. And that's this overemphasis on family. Everything is so deeply personal in the Daniel Craig era. And they started us down this path. And when we got to Spectre, I mean, in in Skyfall, I was like, okay, this is like your surrogate brother, fraternal struggle, surrogate mother, Judy Dench, and all that stuff. I'm like, okay, dynamics there, fine. But they continued to ram it down our throats in in Spectre with Blofeld being some sort of like adopted brother or whatever was going on. And then this was another film where it was just like, okay, well, since we've done some of Bond's drama, let's bring in Madeline Swan and let's make all of these sort of daughter connections. And to me, I was like, why is any of this necessary? And I felt that there were so many loose ends. And then it was just like, well, Felix Leiter is my brother. And and so we've, we've killed him off the same way that we've killed off Judy Dench's M with, you know, a wound to the stomach. So now I'm wounded and now my family's gone. And it was just, it, I, oh my goodness. Like I just was watching and processing and, and I just, I felt like it was too much for me to take in. And I was really disappointed, to be perfectly honest, sorry to keep rambling on, um, at the end when Nomi left with Madeline and the child. And I thought, you have two double O's. This is a huge mission. This is like the end of the world. I don't understand why Madeline can't drive a rowboat herself. And Nomi <laughs> stay on and fight. And, and as, as you mentioned, um, Madeline, you were talking about Waylin, and it felt like the Waylin effect. Like, go off, Waylin. I am Bond, and I'm going to be over here. And I'm like, you have two, literally two 007s with you. I can even understand Bond sacrificing his life for Nomi to survive. That I would have been like, I get it. One of us has to hold this, whatever this thing, this lever is, and you go on. I can even understand that. But just the way that she was just pushed away, and the way things really, in my opinion, devolved after that. It, you lost me. And I will say, I, I finished watching it recently, feeling very hurt as a fan. Like I actually hurt on the inside. It wasn't just, you know, James Bond died. I actually felt like a sense of betrayal on behalf as a fan of this franchise, having seen, you know, 25 films. I just felt like I was being attacked or I don't know. I it just, it, I don't know if other people felt that way. Cause I know a lot of people were crying at the end, but I don't know if it was crying because it was sadness on screen or crying because of how you felt about I the said, sadness yeah. on screen. I felt like I was watching um, my own home being ransacked by thieves and there was nothing I could do to stop it. Yeah. Um, I felt like the, you know, the, the convoluted plots and the backstory and the history and the fact that they have these kind of really very basic bit kind of Freudian analyses coming in all the time. But at the same time, they kind of pat themselves on the back for being so much cleverer than all the other Bond films in the franchise. They think they're so much better than the franchise they're in. Um, but, you know, a big part of Bond's character is that he doesn't have too many ties to things. Um, and so I think that the whole he was your brother all along thing, Inspector, which 
is literally a plot a, a plot um, line that is parodied in an Austin Powers film, mm-hmm. which is being ridiculous. Austin Powers and Goldmember says, "Lol, he Doctor Evil was your brother all along," and they, they that's a joke because it's so ridiculous. And then they actually sincerely decide to replicate it, Inspector. And then I felt that in No Time to Die, they kind of twist the knife around even more. They basically say that because we want to give Daniel Craig a proper send off from the series, we're going to destroy him and create massive plot holes that don't make any sense. We're going to disrupt um, all of the kind of continuity that you've come to ex- expect in in Bond. For example, I mean, it's a small thing, but um, Felix Leiter, this is a, Felix Leiter loses his leg in License to Kill and now he can walk again. Um, so that doesn't make any sense. You know, he should be legless if this is where Felix Leiter is going to die. I mean, I know that's a small and, and neaky thing, but it, to me it kind of shows how they're willing to sort of destabilise continuity just so that they can have this big send-off for Daniel Craig, um, as they did for Judy Dench, I suppose. Um, but I think the whole doing it that way shows a real, a kind of profound arrogance. It shows that it, these are these the, the the some of the Daniel Craig entries think that they are more important than the series they're in, and that they can rip up the rule book as they see fit, no matter what it feels like for fans to watch. Hey Ben, do you want to follow up? That? <laughs> Sorry, Ben. <laughs> How the fuck do I? Follow that. Um, I suppose, Lisa, if you feel personally attacked by by all of that, I, I I suppose I feel my viewpoint is being sort of semi personally attacked by it. But um, okay, so let me start off by saying, where do I see it in the in the the Daniel Daniel Craig kind of um, entries? Obviously, Casino Royale is one of my favorite, if not my favorite Bond film. Um, it's an excellent film in its own right. Um, uh, and I would say that No Time to Die is a, is is probably superior in my mind to everything else other than Casino Royale, and it bookends his um, tenure very nicely, in my opinion. Um, it feels like the, the the thing about Casino Royale is that it can stand alone. Uh, but no time to die can't. So it kind of it, it feels like a really good strong companion piece in that regard. Um, but uh, it that's the reason why it can't eclipse um, Casino Royale for me because it, it's not a it, it's not a narratively speaking it's not a kind of a a tight circle. It it re- it requires quite a lot of um, knowledge of everything that's gone uh, prior to that. Um, in regards to people saying um, that this sort of uh, rips up the the rule, but I think you said that, Madeline, right? Um, and I I agree, it does rip up the rule book um, in the sense that Casino Royale was a reboot of Bond. He's not supposed to be, despite the fact that they keep throwing in these things from the past to to tie him into. A previous incarnation of 007. Nobody says, "Well, why doesn't why don't they mention Tracy?" Or, you know, it's because he never experienced those things, and he isn't that James Bond. So he isn't, in my mind, the same James Bond Sean Connery, Roger Moore, uh, etc. Played, and in, and in ripping up that rule book, which they did in Casino Royale to say this is starting afresh, this is new. We are giving you something different. Um, this is really a kind of a logical conclusion to that promise of Casino Royale when it started out. It shows you that these are different incarnations 
Um, I've always had this sort of multiverse theory of, of James Bond, which is that really sort of every incarnation that we have uh, with every incumbent actor is is sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, a one step aside kind of universe bond, which allows you to um, to accept these these incongruities and, and, and inconsistencies within the, the timeline and the, uh, you know, the fact that he never ages or, you know, um, but this, this really is strictly saying that this is a, a multiverse bond. This is a different James Bond, like Spider-Verse bond, so to speak. And what happens to that James Bond um, really doesn't have to follow the rules and the rule books and the, and the formula. And despite Cubby Broccoli forever saying that, you know, don't mess with the formula and you won't mess up Bond. I also think that, you know, occasionally you've got to throw a, a cat amongst the pigeons and stir things up. Because okay, but it's I, all cat. Where, where The pigeons have been eaten. Like, there's just a load of prowling cats. <laughs> yeah, there's, no, there's nothing of Bond. You know, there's, but, it's unrecognisable. And, I mean, I, 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 love, I love the idea of the multiverse Bond. I really do. But, for example, I know I mentioned, sorry to get, um, get all, like, continuity, um, but the, I mentioned Felix's missing leg. Why is yeah. it that Blofeld's eye injury from that we see in You Only Live Twice, they give an origin story to that? Because I think, think Madeline, that the majority of people think of, um, you know, as you said earlier, you know, that, that, that eye has been parodied in Austin Powers. Um, people think of Donald Pleasant's uh, Donald Pleasant's Donald Pleasant's, <laughs> Donald Pleasant's um, his portrayal of Blofeld. You know, they think of that, that particular scarred face when they think of it, when they think of Felix Leiter, um, we've only got one film, and to be honest, at the very end of, um, you know, of, of License to Kill, you, you, and you don't really even, apart from us being really good fans, if you were, if you were not a fan of, of, of the series and, and the books, and you saw that film, it would be difficult to really remember that he had his leg bit off. Um, I, I honestly think that that's that's the case, and I think if you ask the 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 average person on the street, you know, what are Felix Leiter's um, predominant kind of characteristics, it wouldn't be that he was eaten by a shark. Um, I don't know. Just, I think that film is the most um, the the most the meatiest. Well, apart from obviously the Casino <laughs> Royale, I'd say it's the to meet perhaps the wrong word, but I say well, that's the most kind of. Felix Leiter is an incredibly important role in License to Kill. It's not like other Bond outings where he turns up as a kind of helpful ally. You know, at the end of In the Living Daylights, he just kind of pops up in Tangier with his helpful ladies um, mm. as a kind of supporting act. In License to Kill, what happens to Felix is very much integral to the plot and it's what sets the action going. And I think that's partly why they, because it's an important role, they went back to get a previous Felix from Live and Let Die to play that character. So I yeah. actually would say that License to Kill is a quite an important thing. And I don't say, I'm not saying that I'm angry that they didn't, that they didn't have the leg. Um, I'm not that angry about Felix Leiter's leg, but it's just, to me, it shows that they are, they, they have some continuity when it suits them and other times they, no, none at all. No, I and I think there's it. a chop and change thing there. That and, as kind I, of, and as I was watching, yeah. you know, the, the, the ship sink, I, I, I thought that that's what would basically happen. He would be, you know, either, either have his leg bitten off by a shark. Oh, or yeah. Would, <laughs> you know, as it's going yeah. Up and he's bleeding out, so I'm thinking, oh, he's dead, they're going to attract Damn it. Yeah, why didn't they do it that way? Um, but, but my point, I, I, look, I, I, haven't, I haven't been able to kind of talk about the things that I liked in it. Um, 
or like, <laughs> I, I think I agree heavily with Sean really on his assessment of, 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 of the technical elements of, of the film. Um, and when, uh, when we get to the, the last act, that's where I kind of feel like there's a lot of like where Calvin says that he, he feels it, it, it really fell down and, and, and wasn't working for me. It had that really nice kind of combination of you only live twice the novel and you only live twice the film where you've got this incursion into an island. The, the, the production design is, in my opinion, just pitch perfect in it. It's got this kind of German expressionism stuff going on. It, it's almost like the third man as well, uh, light and shadow playing through it. It's, it's just beautifully done. And I, uh, but, to, but to come to a point that Sean made, I don't think narratively this film makes any fucking sense. And, um, but like You Only Live Twice, the film, which also has this kind of, I've talked about it many times, this kind of disconnected dreamlike logic to it. This also has many, many elements that really don't dovetail. But I think overall, for me, it was, it was the experience of it. And rather than feeling betrayed by Bond's death, because I've, I've sort of felt, James and I were discussing this uh, um, at some point, I think on another podcast, you know, did, did I know that, did I feel that Bond was going to die? I thought, I've kind of been feeling for a while that this is where they were taking this character, or, or I should say Daniel Craig's interpretation of this character, because that's what I genuinely believe it to be. Um, and I, and I, I wasn't surprised by it. Um, I'm surprised that they had the the balls to do it. To be honest with you, but I was kind of, and I won't say I won't say pleasantly surprised, but I was kind of like, oh, they did it, and they 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 kind of went where they were suggesting that they were going to go with it. And I actually feel that what this allows for now is is because obviously James Bond will return. We're going to see different incarnations and it will allow doors to open up that aren't fettered by um, formula and things like that. And one last thing I will say before I, I give it back up, just to, uh, just to Lisa's point about family. Yes, family has been very belabored in this, uh, in this series of, of, of Craig films, um, but family is one of the strongest things that everybody talks about in terms of the Bond production. They always say, Bond films are like a family. And if you've had pretty much your entire life working in a family unit that isn't, you know, necessarily blood related, um, family is one of the strongest motivators and strongest kind of like narrative ideas that you can have. And essentially, I feel like it's Eon putting its ethos onto the screen. They feel like they are a family company and this is a family business. And in respect to that, they are making Bond sort of family and these are not and these are not things that haven't been explored in the novels before so that's what i will say uh as a fast and furious fan i'm all about family <laughs> thanks Tom. <It> wasn't <laughs> <laughs> david we missed your highlights and lowlights okay uh glad that i'm on last uh, because uh, some some very good points and some of which that i i wanted to cover and uh one of the key things for, for me one of the things i really loved was, was the dialogue because i think it's the best in the the bond series full stop uh the you know 
even with Casino Royale, I, I thought that a lot of the dialogue, especially written for female characters, was a bit clunky. And I, I always feel that's the fault of Purvis and Wade. But uh, this time, I, I, I believed the dialogue. I, I didn't. I, it didn't feel like it had been written for for somebody just to, to speak so much as it has right. in the past. So I thought that was a, a big improvement. But um, when, when I look at the film, uh, I, I loved the entire uh, pre-title sequence. It was brilliant. It uh, it was what I wanted. And if it had ended, well, it, it could have gone on past the. The, the titles, but um, if it had ended at, at the titles, I, I reckon I would have been happy. Uh, <laughs> it felt completely like Bond to me. Uh, I, I believed in the relationship uh, between Bond and Madeline at, at that stage. Um, and, you know, the uh, Matera is a fantastic looking town. I'd, I'd love to visit uh, the, 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 the car chase. It, the car chase showed that they can do car chases uh, after Spectre, um, and then you know, then we we went to Jamaica and we went to Cuba, and all those scenes were, were, were fantastic. Uh, Paloma, um, a couple of other people have said uh, that, that they they liked her. She she was brilliant. Uh, Anna de Armas before um, before the film was released, you know, she she'd been saying that she, her. She had a different character. She wasn't the typical Bond woman and so on, blah, blah, blah. But we've heard that all before. And uh, the, the sequences that we have seen of her in, in the trailers, uh, you know, I, I, it, it was all action and it looked a bit kind of um, computer game-ish to me. It, it, it just didn't look good. But then when you actually meet her in the film and she's funny and um, it, her character was nothing like I expected it to be. I thought they were just going to play her as as some kind of uh, sultry Latina, and uh, and that was it. And and uh, you know all this thing about her being a different kind of Bond woman was going to be you know the normal uh, uh, thing. And uh, but yeah, she she was funny. Her character was funny, and the action worked. It, it worked much better in the film than it did in the trailer for me. Um, the low lights. I think one of the things for for the for this film and also the two previous ones are all the all the London sequences. Uh, they just bore me. Uh, and you know, it's one of the reasons I can't stand Skyfall. Is because so much of it is set in London, and it, it just it slows down everything. It's not interesting. Uh, you know, I was born in London, so I I know London pretty well, even though I haven't lived in the UK for a long time. But that's not what Bond's about. Bond's about getting to uh, Bond's about getting away to much more interesting locations, and uh, you know. London isn't one of them for me. Sorry, no. Londoners. Um, and for, for, for me, in this film, it was the same. It was just, it slowed things down. Uh, I didn't like it much. And then if they cut out all the all of the London scenes and given more to Jamaica and Cuba, uh, it would have been, it, it would have worked uh, much, much better for me. Um, um, David, did you read the Carrie Fukunaga interview he did in Esquire? Like, 
Middle East where he said that they shot the London scenes um, when Craig got injured and they didn't know how they were going to use them and they oh, just kind of made no, they, no, they, no and, I, didn't, and, I didn't and they wrote generic lines because they didn't know how they were going to fit into the story oh oh that's interesting <laughs> that <kind laughs> no I, I didn't i didn't know that yeah no um okay and right i'm, I'm going to end shortly uh the, the garden of death right that that's something from the novel um um <laughs> oh god uh, you only live twice and uh, it's it's something that I think a lot of a lot of literary fans have wanted to see in a Bond film for a long time, but it, it, they didn't actually call it the the Garden of Death in in, in No Time to Die. I can't remember what it actually was called, uh, but it was completely wasted in, in most yeah. respects. You know, it was kind of pivotal to um, producing the the uh, the the virus yeah, the, the black goo uh, of this movie uh, yeah oh yeah I, I, actually i, I want to oh, there's something else I, I want i want to add which is that before i was in it i used to work in biotech and so the whole <laughs> plot uh just sucks it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wasn't gonna say that right now i was gonna oh, i was gonna it's, 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 it, it, you know it, it's it's just utter Utter, utter nonsense. And, did you, did um, you keep your lunch in the same fridge as the small pots when you're in biotech, David? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting because uh, when Phil and James and I were talking uh, on. Oh, no, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't Phil. It was, it was with Doug the other day when we did our Doug Another Day. Uh, when, when we, <laughs> we did the, the preview, preview um, First Thoughts uh, podcast. One of the things we were talking about was like, um, how is this stuff manufactured? Is it nanobots or is it plants? Can you make it in an office building or do you need an mm-hmm. entire island? You know, well, there was no real, it, it reminded me very much of the black goo in, in Prometheus um, mm-hmm. that just didn't really have any, it, it fulfilled whatever need the narrative decided that it needed. And well, yeah, we don't know how to explain this, so we're just going to. Yeah, you think that they would just consult with somebody, maybe, or at least oh. if they're going to do that, like at least make it consistent throughout the, you know, what it does and how it operates and how he intends to to uh, decimate uh, decimate it with, amongst the, the population. And I didn't really get a sense of one how it worked or two. <laughs> why he was wanting to do it. I got that he wanted to kill Spectre, but, you know, the whole world population being somehow kind of affected by this, I was like, what? Yeah, what? No, I, 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 yeah, I don't understand that leap either. But but, but not, neither of the villains were particularly good. You know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's like you could, have, you, you could have done away with Blofeld completely. Yes. You know who the most villainous character in the whole film was? Mallory. The penguin from Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it was Mallory giving me like Voldemort vibes, like the way that they were positioning him. Like I really thought that that would have been far more interesting if Mallory was the villain for doing this technology. I felt like they were leaning in that way, and then oh, they yeah, didn't, that, and I was like, that's oh, what they wanted to do, Inspector, though. Yeah, yeah. No, and he refused. Yeah, Lisa, no repercussions for him having developed this weapon and allow right? it out into the world and no repercussions for madeline for attempting to murder blofeld 
everybody else is just like, well, I guess, it, you know, we stopped it from getting out there. So everyone gets a free pass on this. We get to have a drink together. Yeah, let's have a yeah. drink and then just, you know, we'll forget about it. Again, I know that we we live in a time where there are often quite you know no repercussions for making terrible mistakes in public life. But I, I just think that if Valerie is still in a job in the next film, like you have to ask serious questions <laughs> of the society of Bond. Mm-hmm. Well, quite right, Madeline, and I and I and I and I think that that's why I kind of have this this seesawing view on this. On the on the one hand, like you know, I recognise. I recognise the flaws in this film, and um, um, the majority of them are kind of the narrative leaps that that exist. Um, James was talking about it on the previous podcast of how you know this moves very quickly from location to location without really allowing you time to make those kind of connective dots work in your mm-hmm. in your in your mind. Um, well, so that's because you can't connect them, so they speed you through them. Yeah, exactly. So right? you, you do it fast enough, you won't. Yeah. Go- I, I, but but you need to you need to slow things down as well. Yeah, there's no time for reflection in this film at all, and it needs it. I, I disagree, David. I think there are moments of of of, of quiet and and character um, reveal, uh, but I, I I do also kind of feel that they there was no real attempt to explain what was go- why things were happening and what was going on. I. I I, might, I mainly liked it, but one of the points that you made actually was like the dialogue was fantastic. I felt that we have one of the best casts, you know, possible for a for a Bond film. Um, there were a lot of things that I that I really really enjoyed in terms of that, and I think they sort of made up for, um, you know, the 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 narrative problems that that existed, and. Um, in the past, I've been very purist about Bond and wanted things to, to work um, in, in terms of canon and in terms of um, connectivity, you know, to the, to the past. Um, and I was particularly upset in, it, you know, this basically comes down to like when, when Bond gets his DB5 in Skyfall, you should be going, you should be going nuts, right? And you should be saying, this, is, this shouldn't be in here. Yes, and, that, and at that moment, for me, that's when the connective tissue disappears. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, anything that happens after that, including Bond dying, doesn't doesn't connect through to the to the other films. And I really now feel that we can do anything with this. Do, do you? I I think actually that they we've got to a point where they that they're. they're constantly referencing other bond films it's the franchise seems to have become entirely self-referential and yes in all the time that you spend yep. harking back to things it's as if they're not really doing a good job of building stuff on their own and i think mm. that the general craig structure of the fact that the all of those films are linked um and it has often meant that they are still dealing with the baggage of previous films uh, I mean, I, I initially I thought that was in Casino Royale. Loved that film so much, right. um, and then in Quantum, I think part, partly it was weighed down by the baggage of Casino Royale. And it seems as if Craig Bond can never quite get a handle on things and actually become Bond. It's like he's 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 constantly being Prince Hal. He's never going to be Henry V, if you know what I mean. He's right. always like gearing up to be Bond, and it still hasn't hasn't really happened because we were still, you know, we had to start. We had to start with him visiting. Best Berlin's grave. Um, and in terms of, I can see how changing the structure might be liberating, but in a way, I think it's been more of a straitjacket because it really, it's meant that we've not been able to 
um, sort of get on with it. Um, and, and with yeah. all these references, like, it almost feels a bit like kind of Marvel Universe thing where the algorithm is saying, oh. bam, 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 here are all the references to things that have happened, um, sort of spluttering them out, um, but without any real consistency to it. It's ridiculous, isn't it, Madeline, that you have to wait until the end of Skyfall to get the traditional office and the here's your next mission. And that's actually where we wanted to start. And we never see it. We never see it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's like running. such a good point. Sorry, go ahead, David. Go ahead. No, no, I I agree 100% with you, Madeline, because Mm -hmm. uh, with Casino Royale, I I think they, they, they... took a huge risk after Pierce Brosnan because Brosnan was massively popular. Um, they decided to ditch him and go in a different direction. And Casino Royale was an unexpected hit. Uh, Quantum of Solace, for probably a variety of reasons, um, missed the mark. But they decided to go off. They decided to take a different direction. And uh, for two films, they were committed to it. Uh, they gave that up, and uh, the, I think the mistake was uh, hiring Sam Mendes because he wanted a different type of Bond film. Uh, Daniel Craig supported that as well, and it took the it took uh, it took the Daniel Craig era off off on a tangent, and I didn't expect it would end here, but here we are. And I was going to say, it feels like. You're trying to run forward, but you have your head looking behind you. And how accurately are you going to make it to your destination? You're going to run slower. You're going to stumble. You're going to bump into things. And I feel as though so much of this era has been backward looking. We have to constantly reference music and characters and make these broader connections and remake and redo and remake and redo. And the one thing that I had hoped for, as as a lot of us did at the end of Skyfall, was like, okay, it's established. He's here. He's Bond, forward-looking. And we've yet to get that notion yeah. of, of looking forward. And when it comes to even the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Marvel is brilliant in what they are doing, right? But they also have multiple characters and multiple storylines where they can do this sort of thing because they're giving you these references to other types of characters and other types of films. I feel as though the Bond franchise in the Craig era, these connections were made like after the fact. They didn't sit there and say, we are going to make five films. We're going to do one step, two step, three step, four step. These are our connectors. They were constantly like, okay, now we're here. Let's reach back. Let's try to make all of these connections. I I remember like the string in Spectre, like this random string in this random photo. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And I feel like they've done it backwards instead of sitting there and saying, you know, we could do a Blofeld trilogy or we could do a this or we could do a that and then pushing out forwards. And I think that has been the limiting factor. And maybe the production style, like if you want to match or mirror Marvel, then you need to sit there and plan out your films in that way. Don't say like, okay, we'll have the next Bond and we'll try to figure it out down the path. Then you're not making that style of film. And and you can't can't actually. Yes. Yes. This is is one of the things that uh, I've talked about before. I I, I don't think that that I've talked about it with you though, Lisa. And Mm. it's the lack of long-term strategy for Bond and and that's what they need. They, they need, yes. you know, they need a, a like a twenty-year vision at, at, at the uh, uh, at the rate they make films these days, or, or probably fifty. But uh, <laughs> the, 
yeah, but it's just the next film. Oh yeah, we don't know what we're doing for the next film, and mm-hmm. it, just making it up as you go along yeah. never works. And and the and the and the retconning that that you, you know Lisa's talking about there. You know, when we have that moment when the ring goes onto Q's laptop, and it's all like it's all connected. It's such a fucking hand wave <laughs> to kind of planning. You know. I, I agree entirely with Lisa. You know the the, the connected the planning and the connectivity that they brought to the Marvel universe is pretty phenomenal. And yes, there are plot holes in it. And yes, not all of it works. But on the whole, you're talking, you know, like twenty something plus films that sort of do all work together. And that that has required a lot of um, you know clever clever writing, clever planning. And as you as you say, Lisa, it requires multiple characters that you can play with not just one mm. yeah but, um, but it also but, relies on the films themselves working right yeah yeah and, and, you know what? and here, here we are saying like we spent an hour and 20 minutes without spoilers talking about how the plot didn't work in this one because yeah but but, but james like it's you know they can afford to have a dud you know you can have a, you can afford to have one of the marvel films not really pick up traction in the way that you hoped it was in order and, and then one of the other ones picking it up down the line so, Sean and Calvin, you've been the two most positive, I think, of this film. Um, how do you think the the plot twists are going to sit within the fandom? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I, I... I think Ben might be more positive about the overall thing than I am. Um, uh, as I say, and, and to uh, some of the points that Ben actually that you made earlier on about the, um, the kind of the nanobots... Uh, sort of ending up being sort of a, just a narrative device to sort yeah. of uh, get the characters to do, you know, well, to basically just to get to bond to the place where he feels that all is lost and he has to kill himself. I mean, that's kind of my main problem with the ending. And I guess that, you know, it's the wrapping up of the story. I'm kind of good with all the setup that they put in place throughout the film. And I do like that uh, it, it wouldn't be an episode of this podcast without me bringing up a Bond video game reference, but nanobots do have yes. precedent in Bond <laughs> uh, from the Everything or Nothing video game, the Pierce Brosnan <gasps> one where Willem Dafoe was going to use them. Yeah. Uh, Yay! Yes. yes. So I was, uh, we, he had full on platinum tanks and stuff. Platinum so uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, was a, that was a more, uh, that was a more gettable use of nanobots for me. I mm. could kind of comprehend that they would destroy technology rather than be a kind of a, a virus um, yeah. but just just on that point i mean my main problem about the ending is that they really um uh they really hammer home the idea that once they are in your system that's it it's eternal it's forever you can never get rid of them possibly and i i'm not quite sure i buy that it's like well i'm sure q you could probably think of something to deactivate <laughs> yeah. them in a yeah. year yeah. How, about, how about that emp watch that you have yes yeah, yeah. exactly mm. it seems like there would be solutions here but anyway uh, Is that yeah. a zoom as well Yes. <laughs> We're looking at each other behind glass. Like this idea that, well, if I can't touch Madeline Swan, I don't want to, or, or like touch my daughter, I don't want to see them. And I'm just like, there are alternatives. You can stand behind glass and see yeah, and be but, part of their lives. But Lisa, mm. I thought that the idea was it wasn't just that he couldn't touch her. It was that. He couldn't touch anybody because the chain reaction. Yes. And, it would, and it would eventually get to her. Yeah, but hang on. We we can rewind to die another day, and we can reprogram their DNA. 
<laughs> but no, yeah. it, it, it was just Elisa's right. It was just Madeline and um, Matilde that he couldn't touch, uh, no, yeah, the, and, the, and Blofeld. <laughs> but he was already dead. But what well, they're saying with the with the thing is when they were talking about the the the, the deaths of those people, right? Uh, the, who went to the the funerals? Um, mm. They're basically saying that these things, um, the, the the people themselves become the the instrument of passing it on. So mm. if Bond shook hands with me. Right, and I got it. I'm mm. fine, but then if I go and see Madeline for an afternoon, not ah, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I I hadn't got that actually either. So okay. the idea is that it doesn't matter. At some point down the line, and particularly given you know Bond's connection with the people that he you know Madeline works with and all of that kind of stuff, that that even if he came back, he would somehow be infecting them eventually. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Did she get destroyed by heat and fire? Were they trying to say that? Because like, if he got exploded into the universe, certainly some of his particles are yeah, in the air somewhere. Explodium works in in mysterious ways, Doctor. Mm. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't feel like a, a solution because Madeline still has some nanobots in her, right? Like, yeah, and they're programmed. They, different. they are, but they are programmed for. Yes, th- th- this is where this entire. Th- Plot device is bollocks. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're like, how does it work? I don't get it. It really felt more like something from a Doctor Who that it would explain yeah. why one of Doctor Who's assistants has to be retired and he has to morph right. into something else. Right. It's yeah. not, yeah. not a Bond it, 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 It's something written for 10-year-olds. Is it, and it's considering, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of... Um, the core fans are kind of very middle-aged now. Um, well, speak for yourself, David. <laughs> I, I, I'm good with fantastical stuff. I, I, I would rather Bond were in this space than uh, some of the, you know, the more down-to-earth Craig plots. In, in let's this say, space but, or in space? Well, <laughs> you've got me there. Bit of but, both. But it does need to work on its own uh, internal logic, and this just felt like it. Yeah, it kind of didn't. Um, anyway, sorry, James, I went off really on a different tangent there. What was well, your I was question? Well, I'm going to offer a theory to this, which is okay. I honestly think Purpose and Wade's first draft of this, because obviously when Fukunaga came in, right, they threw out the Danny, the Danny Boyle script, mm. they went back to what Purpose and Wade had originally written, and then they started changing it as they were shooting. I really feel that Purpose and Wade's script, it was a virus, because mm. when you look at the um, title sequence where you've got all the plants and the vines and mm. it's a biological yes. thing. Yeah. You've got mm. the Garden of Death, all biological. And mm. then when, the, when you see the weapon being activated in the vials, it grows like a vine. Mm. So it's mm. nothing to do with nanobots. And the, I think the, I think the, the nanobots is thrown in at the end by Fukunaga's oh. rewrite. Oh, and that's why, that's why it doesn't make any sense to okay. me. Mm. But, but the, the, the title sequence, it, it's like you get the wolf of PPKs in the shape of the double uh, helix. Yeah, but the, the virus could still be DNA targeted, right? No, no, no. Sure, 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 yeah. Yeah. Hmm. No, and I think coming back to a point that David made re- earlier, which was, you know, I remember when we first, way, 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 way back when the the, the soundtrack was first sort of re- like leaked, and you know we had that Garden of Death title. I went, they're doing it. They're gonna do it. They're gonna. They're gonna. And I, I genuinely thought that that was gonna be what the Safin's mysterious. Technical technological weapon right. was going to be, you know, because we got that little, we got that little pricey, didn't we? That press release which was said a formidable new weapon in his hands, and I was just like, he's created something out of these, out of these plants, and we're really going to get a kind of a combination of, um, you know, Shatterhand from You Only Live Twice and 
uh, you know, a I, I just thought record. it was going to be biological. And really, all we were left with was just this silo with a Japanese garden in it. And well, it, it was Safin in his dad's allotment. Yeah, and, you know, that's really, that's really just not great. And I also just very quickly feel like it's a hugely missed trick to have the garden, that watery bit of the garden covering the silo, right, and have Safin, like, in it and, and not have not have to see him fall through the middle of it into his own goop. Oh, yeah, mm, yeah. 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 You know, that would have been brilliant. Nice overhead shot because that would have reminded us of Goldeneye, right, where he could sat in right. be just there going, oh, I'm, you know, I've had my arm. And, and, and a bit like the man with the golden gun, right, David? Yeah. <laughs> I will say that for as much as I didn't much care for Safin in this, I thought that th- like they have a good array of hench people in this mm. one, I think. I really yes. like that kooky scientist guy. Um Logan Ash, I think, is really like nice yes. and menacing. Oh. Uh, and Primo I quite liked as well. Yes. And all of these were characters that I thought were going to exist in like a single scene. We didn't really see all that much of them in the promotional material. Oh. Um but they all like like most of them ran through good deal of the thing and i i thought they were all dispatched of in really fun satisfying ways i liked that kind of harkening back to some of the older bond films where you do have a lot of villains because most of the craig era has i know we had elvis in quantum of solace and hinks in spectre neither of which i think made much of an impression in the henchman um department but uh for what it lacked with Safin, I felt like it made up for in this ensemble of villains, uh, which yeah, I really like. They could they could have done away with the villains and just had the, the henchmen. Apart from yeah. apart from <laughs> the fact that um, you know Safin's main drive is to eliminate all of Spectre, but you're gonna get the guy that was the eyes of of uh, Blofeld to be your bodyguard now. Hey, it's the Henchman Hotline. We've seen it in Moonraker. You just call it up, whoever's surviving from whatever organization. To, to Blofeld, I was just working for him. I just had my eye removed and agreed yeah. to be his eyes in the world. So I'm not really anything to do with those guys. So you can just hire me now. I did really. Oh, f- I, I I did feel very sorry for Primo. We're like when we see that those shots of Christoph Waltz in his little cell, like talk. Well, they, we think he's talking gibberish, but he's actually communicating through the eye. Mm. I guess like the idea that Primo has to put up with that twenty four seven. You just have Christoph Waltz <laughs> muttering away in your ear. Like, could you imagine? Just let me sleep, God. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's really gone above and beyond what a henchman needs to do at Bond. Yes. It's like poor, like poor Nick Mac having to leave his family behind and live on an island with just. His entire life. <laughs> yeah. You think Primo goes to all these like restaurants and things, and Blofeld's like, "What's what's the food like?" And he's like, "It's not very good, boss. It's you know, you wouldn't like it." <laughs> <laughs> Primo mustn't have much of a private life if Blofeld's looking through oh, his eye yeah. all the time. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Well, hang on. It, it, the how he needs to recharge it sometimes, doesn't he? Well, I mean, you just close that eye, wouldn't you? But like, oh, blimey! <laughs> and then you'd have just Christoph Waltz just in your ear, going, "What are you doing?" You know. Like, uh, <laughs> Is she pretty? <laughs> Sean, you've been really quiet. Hello. Yeah, maybe that's for the best. <laughs> So what did you think, Sean? You said the things that you said when your your initial your initial kind of overview of it. I was like nodding away, going, "Yeah, agree, totally, (laughs) great points." 
from, from a design from from a designer's perspective, Sean, what did you think of what they did to the gun barrel? The lack of look, title cards, um, you know, some of the tropes being thrown away. Um, I, I, it's, oh, and those doctor and the doctor no dots. What did you think of those? Oh, I, I, I've been I've been hoping those would be popular for a while because they're such a strong sort of visual image that they. I, yeah, I like I'm those surprised too. they haven't used those in the brand more over the years. So hopefully they'll be kind of like the basis of what we see through the 60th. I'd be really happy if they were. Actually, to that point, Sean, you know we talked a lot about holding Bond, this particular Bond, back for the 60th. Can you imagine if James Bond dying? Was yeah, the- I, 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 I thought that earlier, actually, Ben. Yeah, yeah it's James Bond's 60th. <laughs> James him. Bond is dead. <laughs> Fuck that's you. Probably, that's probably why they pushed it forward. They're like, this needs to come out this year. <laughs> this needs to come out now. We, we don't need to make any money on it because we're never going to make any money in the future. And imagine if you're a fan for the first – well, not a fan. If you Imagine if you're somebody seeing this film for the first time. Are you going to become a fan? That's a good no, point, David. And, uh, do you know, it's a very interesting point you should make, right? Because somebody actually messaged me last night and said, I'm thinking of taking my 13-year-old son to see No Time to Die. It's his first Bond film. No. And I went, don't do it. No. (laughs) Because what a way to start your Mm. connection connection to Bond. It would just be awful. Yeah. I actually think that's one of the things that really upset me about this film. That mm-hmm. I remember the first one I ever saw in the cinema was um, The World Is Not Enough. And I know that some people say it's not it's not the greatest. I'm I'm quite a fan perhaps because it was the first one I ever saw. But it, I it's my favourite coming... of the Brosnan ones. Yeah. Okay, good. So so, mm-hmm. so I'm, it's not just me who likes it. Nope, but I, I love I, it I as well. Away, yeah, I remember walking away and just grinning ear to ear, saying to my my dad and my brother, Oh, that was what that was amazing and just having this this huge love of bond and and all things silly etc and i just think the idea that you would go in and um and watch that character go through quite sort of quite adult emotions more so than we've seen from bond ever really before being blown up um it seems really unfair it seems like it's kind of trampling over you know people's childhoods and sort of a lot of people have got in touch with sorry i said it does short short change in a lot of ways on that on that level, because if you think about a film, films in the past, as for an example, um, Spy Who Loved Me, right, which is just family kind of fun and entertainment, and it's just you know you come out of that sort of punching the air a little bit, and it's just it's just good fun, right? I mean, whether it's a good film or not is is immaterial. It's it's about that it's just a it's just one of those kind of tentpole movies, right? Whereas this is just this this is an adult film and it doesn't have any of that you know it's, it doesn't feel like yeah, yeah. yeah actually that, that that's an interesting point ben because it, it's it is an adult film but then the the whole uh plot is based upon which is completely childish in, <laughs> it, in its, it, it's an adult it, film written by a 10 year old <laughs> you say the same about Majesties. Like, I, I mean, ending wise, um, like you know, it, it ends on a very pessimistic note. And I yeah. know what's that quote about the first ten minutes of a film and the last ten minutes are the most important in terms mm. of you know getting an audience hooked, and then the overriding feeling mm. that they leave with at the end. And I can imagine that 
well, I mean, obviously, Majesties didn't have that much of a great critical reaction, I believe, mm. around the time it was released. And mm. I, I do wonder if it, I mean, it helps that if you watch it now, you know, if you're watching them in order coming afterwards, you've immediately got another film to go into and, and all this. Whereas uh, yeah, now, I guess we can. Kind of, forever. <laughs> Well, <laughs> maybe unfortunate for some, um, but whereas yeah. with this, we need to kind of sit with it now for three, four years, well, optimistically. What would you say the Majesty's um, arc was? Because I reckon it was probably 40 years for that what, film. Before it became... Before uh, it became much loved. It was about 40 years before mm-hmm. people, audiences properly assessed it. it was mm. after Casino. Um, yeah. okay. Are we looking at like... 2050 something so no time to die to be like this is one of the good ones well possibly i mean i i think it's well worth i mean you know you look at the end of majesties it it's uh i mean it's a completely out of the blue like i think if i was seeing that in the cinema for the first time that would i mean it's an ultimate downer uh and literally out of nowhere blofeld and emma bunt come shoot his wife and then that's it you just end on a sad note um and then a very bombastic theme it, well, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, it's different because it's the hero's wife and not the hero, you know, of the, of the franchise. But um, so oh, this will be interesting then if the parallels to Majesties about the audiences coming out on a bummer, right? A lot of the box office for Majesties, I mean, it was it was the second in the UK that year or something. But it, Eon always painted it as like a box office flop, right? In the official histories, um, a lot of that was leveled at. George being the new Bond and nobody really had took to him, rather it being the ending. With this, you've got a, a, you know, somebody, a super popular Bond actor doing his last one, but with a bummer, bummer ending. So if the box office doesn't come in for this, can we put that down to the ending and not the actor? And then we can go back to Majesties and say it was the ending and not the actor. I, I've that, seen a lot oh. of tweets that essentially say that they aren't just betrayed by the events of the film, as as Madeline says, um, but they they feel that they don't now have the same connection uh, to Daniel Craig as they as they previously had done, um, and so it isn't just about the um, the film per se or, or the events of the film, but it's also about. I, I think there are a few people who are kind of um, not blaming Daniel necessarily, but but associating, you know, it with with him, and and I think it's changed a lot of people's views on on him. As, re- like, oh, sorry, Ben, interrupt. No, that's it. I was just going to say, I, I really wish I could remember who I was talking to about this. Um, I can't remember if it was after the first viewing or the second viewing. Um, so I really wish I could credit whoever came out with this, but it really struck a chord with me where they felt that. Um, sort of after that last fight with Safin, it felt like Bond stopped being Bond and it just became Daniel Craig saying goodbye to the audience. And it mm-hmm. felt a lot mm. more meta in a strange way. It, it didn't feel like it was Bond anymore. It was something else. And that struck a chord with me. I was kind of like, oh, right, okay. Because I'm assuming, I'm not sure if it's been officially released. I'm guessing it was his, you know, his, one of his... Not, well, maybe it was not his stipulation man, but... to coming back was right. Yeah. Okay, there we go. I, then. I, I feel really bad for Danny Boyle because Danny Boyle took a raft of shit in the tabloids when he split from the film because the rumor came out that he was the one that wanted to kill James Bond yeah, off, and yeah. there was creative differences. And like all the best rumors, there is a grain of truth to it, right? But the story was completely the wrong way around. It was Craig wanted to kill Bond off, Danny Boyle didn't, and Danny oh. Boyle split. 
God, that that mm. is. Well, yeah. So now we're going to be talking forever. What what could it have been? Yeah, it reminds me a bit of like when David Tennant's Doctor Who dies, that you know, <sighs> regenerates, and he spends an entire kind of episode just kind of walking around, going, "Bye, everybody." And I don't really want to go. Obviously, I cried in that, and I did feel uh-huh. similarly sort of. I felt I felt worse about David Tennant going than I did about Daniel Craig going because I sort of get yeah, all Bond dying, but I felt Bond. We know Bond's coming back. Like they've told us that that is happening, so we are going to get more Bond. It, it's, yeah, but you, you you have to really wait for that to happen because um, the, you, you know you, you the, it, well, in, in my screening this morning, right? As as soon as the titles came on, they switched on the lights, and because it was a private screening, they were trying to usher us out of the cinema. Right. And uh, no, and I, I I said to my wife, no, we 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 need to sit to the end, and I. I I, and I, I always like to sit right to the end of films, but uh, this one particularly. And um, yeah. I was surprised how late the uh, uh, the uh, James Bond will return uh, was. They yeah, should I, have done it. They should have done it not immediately necessarily, but very very soon afterwards. Because yes. you know there'll be people who will walk out of that that cinema without seeing that title card yeah and i i I wasn't sure i i I wasn't sure if this wasn't an actual statement by eon right yeah until until i saw it right at the end but it it, but it it came but before that happened because i i saw i i saw it in english language but with with spanish subtitles and so I got the thanks to the subtitler before I got the uh, James <laughs> Bond will return. Yes. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's something, I suppose. Um, look, I've only seen this once, and as as usual, buoyed up by um, you know hype and expectation, and the fact that I tend to lean very heavily into positive feelings when I go and see uh, any kind of film for the first time but particularly a bond film um i i you know phil's been teasing me about this um you know that I, my my review will completely you know do an about face in in a month and he might be right i just i think i need to see it a few more times um and and to Absolutely. really to really absorb it a bit a bit more and you know what it's a bit like it's a bit like if, if someone's ever broken up with you and you take a little bit of time to realize, you know, first of all, you're like, I, I didn't need them anyway. I'm fine. And then, like, a week later, you're like, but they've left me. And, you know, you actually <laughs> feel the heartbreak a bit later. Maybe I'm having a delayed reaction to this. I don't know. Um, or, or maybe you like the film and that's okay. I mean, that's, th- I mean, the best part, as re- we can see through our podcast, is we all have differing opinions we have different inspirations we have different relationships with this franchise and you know for me did i enjoy it 
yeah, no, not entirely. Could I change my mind? Absolutely. I could learn to love this film and I could learn to hate this film. And I've said this before. I hated Casino Royale. Now it's my favorite Bond film, right? And I think it's important to know that however you're connecting with this, you are entitled to your thoughts and your feelings and they can change over time. This is just a film that has a lot. It's got a lot jammed in and there's a lot, like we're even trying to work through like what was going on with the plot? Like what did this mean? Because I know that I struggled sometimes to like figure out about the technology aspects or trying to understand what you, you know, where all the characters sort of fall and who's, who's doing what and where, right? So you are a hundred percent entitled to it. And if you continue to love it, I think that that's amazing. Oh yeah, I completely agree. It's amazing how a bit of distance from a Bond film can, can change uh-huh. everything. I remember um, when I was at uni showing, um, the Living Daylights, which is one of my favourites, to the guy I was seeing at the time, and he'd not seen it before. And I was like, oh, my God, you're going to love it. This is going to be incredible. I'm so excited <laughs> to show this to you. And then at the end, he, was, he said, oh, this was really, you know, this was a it was fun film, but, man, do you have to acknowledge that it makes no fucking sense whatsoever? You know, you've got diamonds, <laughs> you've got opium, you've got the, the Mujahideen, um, you've got this Russia thing, you've got, like, two so many baddies. Um, and I had to acknowledge that that he was right, that obviously yeah. my understanding of The Living Daylight had been improved by watching it 50 times or yeah. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think certainly the first time I saw The Living Daylight in the cinema, uh, I, I remember this, I, it's a distinct moment. I remember when they show, uh, you know, they have to show the organ that they are transporting in the, right. you know, to the, like the, you know, the when they're loading the plane up. And I was just like, I think, what, what? What are we doing? <laughs> Why is there raw opium and, and organ transplant and weapons and diamonds? And who's the bad guy? And <laughs> you know, I, I genuinely came out of it and I, believing that. And I even I remember distinctly saying this to, to to a friend of mine at the time. I remember saying the thing about Bond films is they're all supposed to be a little bit you know hard to understand. And of course they're not. But I just that was my excuses <laughs> for why it was so difficult to understand it. But you're right. On subsequent viewings, you know, you start to you start to see a few more things, and it starts to make a bit more a bit more sense. Um, you know what's interesting is all the discussion we've had on this and the previous one, and all through the week. You know, the topic that's not really come up much is mm-hmm. uh, Bond's got a kid. <laughs> I kind of gets lost ah. in all of this, mm. doesn't it? Yes. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, I, I, I want to dive in here a bit because there's something uh, slightly amusing. Well, for me, uh, which is the, <laughs> the 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 teddy bear bunny thing that um, mm-hmm. um, the, the kid had. We, uh, my wife and I, bought one for one of our friend's daughters about five years ago, and uh, it may be the exact brand. <laughs> and so it's like but we need to need to find out what that was because i'm sure there would be some people some people would like to know i'm sure it'll be on i'm sure it'll be on james Bond lifestyle before you know it as, as hey, will yeah, well, uh, yeah but maybe maybe you're i'll maybe i'll be tw- the you're waiting um, for the twenty thousand dollar limited edition teddy bear <laughs> <laughs> It would yeah. be quite a Mr. Burns from The Simpsons thing to do, but I mean, if there's a way of you could you could possibly get it back and flog it, you could make an absolute fortune from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I'm trying to work. I'm trying to work on that. It's like, yeah, yeah. that. Um, it's not an easy way in. <laughs> <laughs> I like you remember that? <laughs> yeah. But, but 
And when I saw that the scene with him holding it when he was walking around with a gun in one hand and the stuffed bear in the other, it kind of reminded me of that scene in, um, has anyone seen the film Con Air? Where yeah. Nicolas yeah. Cage is, he's got that bunny, that bunny that he has to get for his daughter that he hasn't seen. And there's a bit where John Malkovich gets the stuffed toy and he's like, put the Barney back in the box. <laughs> <laughs> it reminded me so much of that. I don't think it was intentional. It wasn't like, you know, obviously there were various points where they were clearly referencing something else. I, I think this was accidental, but I just could not get it out of my head when that scene was happening. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I felt there were some definite cageisms in there, right? And particularly thinking about The Rock at the end, um, I just I thought maybe we'd see Bond go down on his knees and hold up some green flares. You know, <laughs> I, 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 I've even made a little meme that I haven't put out yet because of spoilers, which is just a picture of Nick Cage doing that. And then I photoshopped Daniel Craig standing next to him looking like, what? Anyway. <laughs> but I would say I think I got more true lies uh, than I did these other references. And, and it happened when they were in the uh, Return of the Jedi forest running, <laughs> running through. Um, and you saw Daniel Craig, you know, cradling his his daughter's head and Madeline doing a bit of the shooting. And it reminds me of sort of like the, the, the plot of True Lies is you have basically James Bond with a family, right? Only it's Arnold Schwarzenegger and the family learns how to be a spy family together. And it, it did raise some questions for me. Is there sustainability when it comes to family? And you have Felix Leiter mentioning that he has a family, doesn't survive the film. James Bond clearly has this, this opportunity to have a family. And you see, at least with Madeline Swan, yeah. this idea that having a family makes it a liability. And so even then that doesn't happen. And so it's, yeah. it's very interesting that still to this day, and I mean, it was foreshadowed with all of the, we have all the time in the world things. Like mm -hmm. when you say that, you know, it's going to end. Those of oh. us who got married to that song knows <laughs> that it's going to end. Um, but I think that it really was foreshadowing that like, Marriage and family are not sustainable for for spies or in the spy I world. Pay the odds, Lisa. You know, yeah. I I went. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm gonna roll this dice and, and it'll it'll work out for me. And obviously it didn't. But um, <laughs> um uh, true lies, Lisa. Um, villain played by Art Malik. This one villain yeah. played by Rami Malik. Like, <laughs> yep. True true lies. True lies. Yeah. Yeah. There's the nanobots. Yeah, true lies. <laughs> I, I actually said uh, in the cinema when, you know, and this is probably not the thing to do during a press screening, but when uh, Madeline shoots that guy in the Return of the Jedi forest, because I thought it, it reminded me a lot of um, the Jurassic Park. And when she shoots the guy, I went, mm -hmm. clever girl. And I don't think mm -hmm. that necessarily landed well with the people who were sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad that they have women who can actually shoot properly in this film. Mm. That was one of the things that really infuriated me about Skyfall, the fact that mm -hmm. the sort of thing that unites all of the women in that film is that none of them can shoot worth a damn. Mm. Um, even M, who's managed to be the head of MI6, and it's quite a point-blank shot, and she still manages to screw it up. I just thought, how dare you? <laughs> she's an accountant, really, after all. Yeah, that's but true. Also, but even accountants have imagination. <laughs> but they also did it at for, like, the, okay. So the backstory, we actually get a backstory for a woman in a James Bond film, and we don't get a backstory told by somebody else. So there's all these allusions to um, Tracy DiVincenzo and Vesper Lynn, but somebody else 
tells Tracy DiVincenzo's backstory at the beginning of the film. So we never hear it through her terms. And right. Vesper Lynn, we hear it through M after the actions have happened. Instead, we actually get like a point of view flashback from the perspective of Madeline Swan about being young. And I felt that they really were leaning more into like, Patty Jenkins's first Wonder Woman film where there's this emphasis on being a child and seeing this child. We, I got a lot to say about, you know, being connected to your father and paternal lineage and, and, you know, a daughter who follows in her father's footsteps and what that means. But you do see her as a child still being able to not just shoot once, not just shoot twice, but she shoots him many times and drags him out of, out of the house. And I, I thought that was... Yeah. And I thought it was incredible. Like it was a very like powerful um, uh, image, at least in in my mind. And and like you say, like having women who are capable of shooting, protecting, defending themselves, being well-trained. But then again, there's this, this trope. And I think Paloma falls into it of like, I've only been trained for three weeks. And and we call that sort of a masquerade of femininity. So oftentimes presenting yourself as say being overtly feminine to hide your possession um, of of masculine traits, traditionally quoted, quote unquote, masculine traits and violence is is historically and predominantly seen as being a masculine trait. So I just thought it was really interesting the way that they started it off and she shot quite clearly. And it was interesting that there were these other little moments in there when they were again in the forest scene um, with the Ewoks um, that it was her shooting the, the person and doing so with like pinpoint accuracy, yeah, right? So uh, once she's I, not I, in a I mother love, role, I, I love those moments as well, Lisa. Yeah, it, it, but, it was it, it was um, you know it, it it had been alluded to in Spectre, yes. you know, with the whole you know uh, she she knew how to shoot the gun and she oh, she hated guns, but that that was the oh. thing. And then then mm-hmm. then you you see it, and yes, yeah, she she really knew. How to handle herself, and you, you got a slight impression of that in Inspector in the the fight with Hinks, uh, but yes. uh, oh. now she was she was able to prove herself yeah, multiple times. Yeah, it was I, I, I liked that, and that uh, uh, she she was a much better character this time round. Yeah, you know, that it, moment where she shoots the the Ewok on the speeder bike. It's <laughs> um, genuinely just so badass because. You know, you really do have a moment of like, oh fuck, how's he gonna, how's he gonna avoid this? Oh, he doesn't have to because she's right there, and she doesn't even, she doesn't miss a beat. It's not even like, you know, often, uh, and, and I'm sure you agree with me on on this, Lisa, is that often when a woman is able to save the man in that environment, you know, like where where she's got the, the surprisingly being able to shoot the bad guy and save save the good guy by doing it, it's often played as like. You know, she's fumbling with the gun, trying to figure out how to work right. it, and then, and then once she's done it, she sort of collapses with this the emotion of it, and and, mm-hmm. and he holds her in his arms, and you know, it's like thank you for saving me. Whereas she's just like, yeah, I've just killed that guy. Let's move on. And I I loved that it was just so kind of like I've got this. Let's you know, I thought that was very effective. I just wish there were more moments of that. Like there are. this is a typical woman in action thing of like, you can't be a mother and a killer at the same time. So like the desire to create life and the desire to take life are considered to be like diametrically opposite. I mean, Hollywood's made that distinction. And so you have these moments where she is a killer, Bond is holding the child, boom, boom, boom. And then he gives her back the child. And then she's almost unable to defend herself when Safin comes and takes her. And I just Mm. really wish that there, for women at the very least, there was a little bit more of like a holistic, like 
more Ripley, really, is what we need. Yeah, like Ripley can be, you know, maternal and especially we're thinking here aliens, the second one, but oh. also being able to like defend that maternal instinct is often quite quite, quite violent. So yeah. it just, again, this is again, me coming from a very specific perspective where I was like, there are moments and I'm like, she's a badass, but I just wanted to see and have the opportunity to see her shine. Cause she, there are these moments. I just kind of wish there were a few more, but then well, again, when she's drinking the tea, yeah, she took out say, that she, the hench she, person. She gets to throw that so, in his yeah. eyes. And I thought that was really good how she did that, where she was trying to convince him that this blinds smart. you, blinds you, you know, it's, you know, it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, Talking of redemption arcs, which we thought we'd see in the Craig era, Moneypenny doesn't get one, does she? Uh, <laughs> nope. She's hung out to dry. Um, Logan Ash, we should quickly talk about. Um, I love the callback to Roger kicking the car. I mm. thought that was great. I thought that was wonderful that they did that. But it was, uh, and I said this yes. to you before, James. It's like it's like it's not just a callback to the the, the the that. It's also like the Sanchez death as well. I think a little bit. It's like they managed to homage both of them. Mm. I, I, I thought of the Roger Moore thing uh, when I was watching it, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're I right. I how brutal Craig was throughout this whole thing, really. It felt like, um, and I guess maybe the film itself, like even in the uh, the opening sequence where we see those scientists getting killed, like, you know. <laughs> Did you think of Goldeneye facility, Calvin? Uh, oh. Because I was thinking, uh, yes, of, I was thinking yeah. the Goldeneye facility level when they were doing that whole scene. Yeah, huh? Yeah, it's like Sean Bean just walking through and shooting innocent innocent scientists through yeah. the glass. Yeah, because you very seldom see that so yeah brutally, and maybe it's because there's a lot more sort of gun stuff going on in this one than in Craig's films usually. But uh, I, I with that moment with Logan Ash, I liked how he did. He was just about to just shoot him, but he'd run out of ammo, and he just chucked it yeah the gun away and uh did the thing with the car but um i did really like that um yeah and know me when she killed um uh-huh. the uh david densick character i thought that was really cool i know uh, you know uh, the time to die thing is maybe a little bit cheesy but i like cheese and uh, i thought it was a really <laughs> great moment for her it could have been so i'm surprised it's like what time is it it's time oh. for you to die you know they could have like put oh. extra cheese on it couldn't they <laughs> I, I, I feel like it was one of those lines when we talked earlier David was saying about how great the dialogue was I, I think the dialogue is fantastic in this film it's one of that was one of the lines where I just went oh man that's super cheesy but it kind of works kind of works yeah and you know it's it's one of those things where I kind of like when they know how to do good dialogue and also when to use cheesy dialogue and it you know there's a lot of cheesy dialogue in the Brosnan era that doesn't necessarily land because there's so much of it. Yes. You've got to know when to... Yes. You, 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 you need to know when to, to add the cheese, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not too much um, cheese. Well, in America, everything's got cheese in it. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. All peanut, all peanut. Cheese doesn't work. Oh, peanut butter. Um, yeah. You know, in the BBFC notes, there was a bit at the end of the BBFC notes that said um, a black character... Yes gets, yes, gets insulted for their race, and then they make they get met with a forceful reply or something. It was code yeah. language, and I was trying to, I was going into it thinking, what are they talking about the whole film? And then, of course, at the end, I think that's what they were referring to. Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah. He has Densick's, the 
Does he have a yeah. line earlier on about something? To, well, it, it, I kind of wondered if this was Safin's whole plan, kind of like reading into what his motivations were, if he was just like a racially motivated thing. I certainly got uh-huh. that uh, uh, from David Densick's character anyway. But it seemed yeah. random to me. Like when it was brought up and I'm like, when was this the plan? Like, uh-huh. was it, you know what I mean? Like I know that it could target a particular ethnicity, but when he turned to her and said it, I was just like, where where did this come from? Because it's nice to have a film where we don't talk about race. And there's like power, I call it the power of unremarkability, where characters well, can just be taken at face value and you don't have to give an explanation for why they're different from the status quo. You don't have to give me the background why, for instance, a woman is a hero and you give me all this narrative or why a black character is in this particular position. And for me, I felt it was a little bit out of place where I'm like, no, 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 don't pop this bubble that I'm in right now. <laughs> because I, I like the fact that we're not talking about this as being an, an aspect where I can take in her character for her actions and accomplishments and leave it at that. Can I ask you a question, Lisa? Hi. Yes. Um, I I obviously think she's just fantastic in it, right, uh, Michelle mm-hmm. Lynch? I think she's um, she's great, and I'm and I'm been championing the the whole notion of um, you know not just a a woman of color in, uh, in that kind of role, but um, but just, but just a woman in that role as well. You know, I just, I think it's great that we have that double uh, O and double O seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's fantastic that there's that. But what what I felt didn't necessarily quite work for me was her um, <laughs> was, was the way the audience was, agrees. I'm sorry, someone dropped a package off, and my dog who never barks was like, "Just <laughs> this one time." How can't you control your dog? <laughs> I'm so um, sorry. No, it's just being, obviously I'm being sarcastic there, um, and ironic. Um, no, I I just felt that, that her her sort of um, constant need to prove her her her, her double O status uh, uh, certainly against Bond seemed to be like it it it, it felt like. You, you don't need to prove anything. You don't, I don't, I didn't understand why she had this particular, um, mm. a- aggressive, aggressive kind of, um, attitude towards yeah. it. Okay, okay, can I just say something here? Because I, I, I was a bit worried about her character in, mm-hmm. in, from seeing the, the trailers and everything we'd seen before, because, uh, she just seemed, she seemed very, uh, kind of, pushy and anxious and i i i thought that uh, i i wasn't at all convinced that i would like a character but uh, in in the film uh, i found that um it was you know they, they basically pushed the in the trailers they, they they'd kind of pushed that aspect of her but in the film she she she, she was a bit more of a rounded character so uh, i she she worked much much better for me i just felt she... like it was just like this one yeah no but i i i i, I know I, I know what you mean but uh, i uh I, I i i was anxious from the trailers and it, it was toned down and so it it because of that, it kind of um, I, I I almost feel like it would have been better if like she made no reference to it whatsoever. She was just like, "I deserve this role because I'm good," you know. She no, didn't... I, yes, yeah, 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 yes, yes. I like, think it's the writers. I mean, at yeah. the end of the day, 
as I said, they have, uh, you know, they're hitting us over the head with Honor Majesty's Secret Service and with the theme and with the this. I feel as though it's just the style of writing that they like to repeat the same sort of key phrases or aspects over again. I mean, for me, you only need to have one sort of dialogue about it. And then I would have been totally fine. And then at the end being like, you know, I want him to be the lead double O. Like that would have been enough. But I feel as though it's this idea of like, let's keep reminding you that this is, this is the tension. This is the tension. And I thought there was an interesting moment where, you know, when I was talking about the Mr. Bond versus Commander Bond, where they repeated that scene where he said, Dr. Madeline Swan, and she said, Mr. Mm. Bond, right after the conversation. And he just looked at Nomi and said, 007. And they walked sort of further in. I felt that at that point, it was all established. Like he yeah. basically yes. said, "Like I get yes. it, I recognize you. Let's Be- move on." Be- yeah. Because, because in in fact, that was that was kind of to say it to the audience. This this is 007, so yeah. you can like it or not. That's yep. it. Can you remember? Can you remember all that time ago when her casting as a double O agent was going to be the thing that destroys this film? Mm. <laughs> And the filmmakers I, obviously. I, I knew still it. get emails about that, James. Like, like last week, even. I know, but now that people have seen it, that's not what anybody's talking about. Which yeah. is great. Which is great. Right? Yes, that, that, I agree that, with that. That is not the talking point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, mean, I love the just... fact that I'm not here, sitting here, thinking about hypersexualization of black women and oh. that I'm thinking about, you know, racist representations. I have to obviously think about this, analyze this more to get like a detailed, but I even thought that the um, moment when she took off her wig was such a recalibration for what happens in live and let die mm-hmm. when yep. Rosie Carver, and it's a joke. And oh. to see this woman just maintain her agency uh, for me, I was like, okay, th- th- yes, this is somebody has thought this through, and they're trying not to misstep. Um, and I thought that that was really admirable. And I loved the scene where you have Daniel Craig between Money Penny and Nomi, and to see Bond flanked by two different women, two black women who are characterized quite differently. The only thing that I really wish, if you if you could like throw in for Nomi, would be that she would have maybe more of her own action sequence where we saw her a little bit more in action, right? We saw more of her in her social role as a spy and, and, and moving people around and stuff like that. And there was the great scene where she did like the lean on the desk and kick, kick out, which I thought was cool. I just wish there was maybe more of a Paloma style action sequence somewhere in the film. Um, just because she, we, we hear so much about all the training that she had and unless I missed it, um, just to see a little bit more of that style of action, yeah, but, but right but, now that's uh, the only deficit that I really see. I, I, I wonder if uh, if Paloma's action scenes were originally written for her because uh, hmm. uh, Anna de Armas was brought mm-hmm. in quite late, wasn't she? And that's a uh, very but good point. Specifically because uh, Kari Fukunaga wanted yeah. her in the film. I, I think you're right, David. My original hypothesis was that they basically scrubbed Felix out of that scene uh, to put her in. But yeah. I think you're. I think you're right. I think it might have been Nomi had no, more no, stuff. No, to it do. couldn't have been Nomi because they need to be in conflict in that moment. That's the whole point of that scene. It, mm. it wouldn't have worked if they were working as a team in that moment. Um, otherwise, they've got nowhere to go. They both share the same enemy, uh, Calvin. So technically speaking, you know, if they were both in that room and both, uh, then the the, the Spectre agents would have been trying to kill them both. So she would have been not necessarily helping Bond, but defending herself. Yeah, but they have different objectives. I, I don't see yeah. it as a... Yeah, I, I I thought that exact same thing, James. I thought it was 
for Felix and maybe, uh, you know, Jeffrey Wright it wasn't available or something like that. Or maybe they just wanted a, a bit of a different kind of energy at that moment in the film. Because I thought that that would have been perhaps more impactful for Felix's death later on. And I, I really right. thought they handled Felix's death really well. Like that really yeah. got me um, mm-hmm. quite emotionally, but uh, mm. I did uh, wonder yeah. if that was maybe the intention. And it would have been nice to, to see that in a sense, because, you know, Felix is, is, is sort of, you know, the Bond's equivalent in the CIA, right? Sort of. Yes. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, is sort of is exactly yes, um, and to, you know to to be to be known and to have respect within the within that sort of like espionage community, but he's only ever been you know presented as sort of uh, you know not not he's not an he's not like an active agent in a sense right he doesn't you have mm. never seen him fight. And no, I think he's more, of a, really... he's more of a side sidebar back channel kind of guy, right? Yeah, and I just thought maybe that would have been a nice send off. I don't know. Mm. I can yeah. see why they wouldn't do it if they. It, um, I mean, I think him and Daniel Craig have fantastic chemistry in this, and I love that scene um, when they're at the bar and they're doing the the guessing the mm-hmm. coin thing. Uh, yeah, it's really yeah, nice. That, that that was good. Yes, yes. But I, that I was, guess if that he's was taken from Spectre. Oh, what from the script? <laughs> Yeah, so the original script of Spectre had Craig uh, Bond playing Blofeld with the um, four coin. Uh, I forget what the name of the game is, but they used walnuts, which is the hazelnuts, which is the whole backstory to their childhood. Mm. But they and it was Craig's dad who was in a pub landlord's favorite game, so that was Craig's yeah. thing that he put in that film. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's quite yeah. nice. Um, but yeah, I, I understand why they would, you know, want a different kind of energy maybe for that action sequence. Maybe it wouldn't have worked um, oh. quite the same way. So, so I, okay, so Bond and Blofeld had their nuts in their hand. That's right. <laughs> You've got two. <laughs> um, Can I ask a question to, to everybody quickly? Um, I was going to say, um, do you remember, like, in the trailers, it was all very much like... Um, everybody has secrets. We just haven't got to yours yet. And then when mm. Blofeld says, um, when Madeline's secrets are revealed, it will be the end of everything or whatever it is, right? Um, did, does anyone really get a handle no. on what that no. no. is? Neither. Daughter of Spectre was completely meaningless as well. It was, I think it's because they shot all that stuff first, right? And then rewrote yeah, significantly yeah, the end. In fact, that, 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 that that bit confused my wife a bit because she was saying, "But uh, is Madeline Mister White's daughter or the daughter of of Blofeld?" And I was like, "No, no, no, Mister mm. White. Don't you remember? <laughs> Don't you remember though? Genoma of a woman." Even I mean, the daughter of Specs sort of made sense in the sense that she was, you know, she grew up in that. Well, I mean, I, think, I suppose she only just found out. Yeah, but Bond already knew that. So how is that like a reveal yeah, to him? No, it, it, it was just confusing for 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 people who aren't. But I still hard, don't know. Fans, I, think. Yeah. I still don't know what her her big. Why was why was Blofeld and Pri- why was Blofeld telling Primo to kill her? Because if you look at the DB five sequence when they're in the square, Primo's trying to kill her, not Bond. Yep. Yes. Why? Okay. Why? Right. And why? why when the, there was the later car chase with all the uh, Land Rovers, why weren't they just trying to shoot uh, Bond's car? Well, there is that. But my, my, my question is, why was, why was she the target? 
for them. Yeah, that, that's that's not explained. I mean, obviously, you know, Blofeld had this plan to kind of um, lure uh, Bond to to um, to Cuba to to have his you know moment where he could actually see the death, right? But um, by the way, the idea that every single Spectre agent turned up at that party and managed to fill one room in in Cuba seems seems sort of a bit. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? Like, well, they were always <laughs> available for board meetings in Paris and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. If you, no, if you no, give no, them enough no, notice, they'll assemble. Um, it's it's my annual leave. Yeah, like, <laughs> everybody, like, I can't not be there. Imagine the one guy that was like, I, I can't, I can't make it, or I missed his flight or something. He's like the only Spectre agent left. <laughs> and also, why wasn't Primo affected? That just it seems very sort of. Because Primo was working for Saffin at that point. Was he working it, it for was... Saffin at that point? Because, both sides. because he was he was the one who was pointing the gun at the doctor, making sure that Bond Bond's um, DNA thing went in there. If he was working for Saffin at that point, he would be like, "No, switch him over. Make sure all the all the Spectre agents die." But you know, it's the Jaws thing. I don't think he was fully invested in the whole living underwater or living in space, for that matter. But he was happy to go along with it. Or, uh... well, so here's what here's what I knew going in was um, in the production notes. It mentions that Primo was only going to be in the beginning of the film, but they really liked the actor, so they kept him on for the rest of the film. I'm like, Interesting. So there was another character going to be like you know the henchman at the end. Uh, maybe it's one. What, maybe it's one. Too, what is too many? One character too many, right? License to kill effect, and they're just like, well, why don't we have the? the why don't we have the guy switch sides rather than establish yet another character? But. Oh, um, yeah. I, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I just, <clears throat> I, I, I just am loving Calvin's imagery of George being <laughs> in the briefing room. Going, oh, okay. Oh, that's what we're doing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, sure. I, I think that this is this is why I I like a good chunk of this film is because it made me feel like I was watching that era of Bond again and I I was very excited about that and it's it, it is these kinds of things mm-hmm. where yeah if you nitpick it but you know go back to the seventies it's the same kind of things but you're just sort of washed along by the fun of it for the most point. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Calvin, have you never been on this podcast before? Nitpicking. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and I do love to nitpick, but 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 what I'm saying is that you know uh, uh, calling it out isn't affecting my uh, enjoyment no. of it. You know, no, no, it's no, just I, kind I, of. I, I knew I, I knew what you meant. I was just. Uh... I was I was joking at the beginning about the penguin from Wallace and Gromit being the most villainous character in the film, but I, I actually think it's the Russian scientist. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like he is the big bad in this film. Mm. Yes. Um, the other yeah, guys are yeah, just kind of like yeah. wait, the other guys are just means to his end, really. In my view, and 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 in the run up to the film, he I thought he would be like one of those like third tier characters that was not really in it. Yes, much. yeah, mm. yeah. I was surprised. I was surprised. I would have preferred it if it was Hugh Dennis, but <laughs> you know, I would have just preferred that him being sort of the milky milky guy and being, <laughs> you know, I, I think he could have done that really really well. And I'm not saying that the guy that played the the Russian scientist wasn't good in the role. I think he really really was and. Um, you know, we, we definitely got a sort of sense of unlikability, um, if that's a word. Um, mm. But somehow I, I just, I really like Hugh Dennis and I think it would have been really nice to, I, I was so delighted to see him in that, um, 
you know, in the lab. And I was just like, oh, great, he's in this. And, you know. You know what I was thinking during that scene, Ben, was you've just seen all your colleagues murdered, right? Mm. You're the second half to the puzzle to let this thing get out. Right. You know you're going to die anyway. Right. Here's the keys. (laughs) I was like, come on. Yeah, no, he should have basically been at a point where he was negotiating, like, his survival in some way. Right. You know, maybe he, you know, maybe he'd be just shot the other guys, or maybe he killed the other guy standing next to him, and went, "Well, he was the other guy, but you can you can use me instead." I don't know. Right. But um, that anyway, was here. It. We are nitpicking logic again. Yeah. <laughs> can, but, can, can we can we, uh, can, can we nitpick some science and <laughs> IT? <laughs> I was just I was just waiting for that. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> Uh, no, I, 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 Ben. If you've got something more to say, then then, then carry on. Otherwise, no. no I'm yeah. just delighted because I know that I was thinking about the the the, the gra- anti gravity jump thing, and I was thinking about the mm. high tech, and I was like, honestly, whilst I was watching the movie, I was like, David's not going to like this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go well, ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, the, the you yeah. know. The anti gravity thing and the eye, I, I, I kind of um, accept in a, in a way. Um, but you know, the science behind those is uh, a bit unknown. And and, and my, my wife actually earlier uh, earlier on was said the the the, the anti gravity thing could that work? It's like well, <laughs> mm. but the. A, a, a couple of stupid things, and one is the Bond's watch and the you know the uh, electromagnetic mm. pulse thing, and he kills um, Primo with that, and he you know, basically blows up his eye. But why does his ear radio work after that? Uh, okay, mm. um, and the, the other thing is that it, it's. Um, Q's house and uh, Q dives onto his laptop and he and uh, you know there's the um, there's the thumb drive and it's got the extra um, mm-hmm. data on it and it all connects. Uh, how the hell was Q allowed to get access to all this information um, at home on his laptop now? But I did like, I don't know if, David, you like the callback to Skyfall where he says, like, do you know where this has been? And then he plugs into his sandbox rather than, like, the MI6 network. Which, uh, yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. But then as soon as he knows what it is, he takes it out and puts it straight into the MI6 yeah, network. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know. That, that should we, should, we, should that... we talk about backwards wings on gliders? Cause, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I've spoken about this before. <laughs> Why didn't anybody in the art department say, you know, those wings on that glider? Mm. Yeah, you got you got them the wrong way around. <laughs> because they thought it would look cooler. <laughs> yeah, I, and that that glider is actually based on like a nineteen fifty three uh, Austrian glider. In fact, m- m- quite quite a lot smaller, but it, it's a it's a very uh, it's a very kind of um, uh, usual designing gl- in gliding. If you're mm. a a glider fan. Was that the only remember. tech? That, was that the only tech that annoyed you? David? Smart Blood's back. The, sp- the Smart Blood's <laughs> back. Yes, and why? 
And what, again, what use did it have? I think it was just so that they could track them. I think it was just so that they had some kind of visualization on the on the screen. Mm. Mm. Well, they could have used that, their phones. Though, just had like a little. Thing. Yeah, the, the, but the, the, yeah, the, this is the, this is the uh, thing. Well, yeah, you don't get the COVID vaccine because they're going to give you smart blood. Well, I've got a mobile phone, and they're going to track me anyway. Right. So <laughs> you know, I mean, I, and they've got that device that they took in there. That you know, that's another thing too. It's like it was a weird thing to do to, to for Q to go. Here is here is a here is a piece of tech um, that we need you to use but here is also an emp um and it really did kind of i mean you know other maybe, than the fact maybe q can't... stuff is made by max Zarin. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but, but in a way technology that's true the the the, the watch stuff it, basically they based it on on how the watch had been handed over inspector it, it was it was almost exactly the same wasn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, Inspectorate works probably better than here. I am waiting for uh, the. Uh, I am waiting for the QT set to be out for Christmas. That will be uh, <laughs> the, Royal, the Royal Dalton QT, QT set. Four thousand five hundred for a teacup. Yeah. Um, so, just talking about the kind of the mess on scene of the whole thing, um, I, I felt like this is this is one of the most beautifully designed films sort of certainly in, in in craig's era um and i think you know one of the best designed films in in all of the kind of the bond canon uh barring obviously anything that ken adam breathed on um and i i, I just thought there was some really lovely use of kind of that you know that that brutalist um you know iconography um and you know, I, I think it really, particularly the way that, like, it, uh, you know, that that Saturn had kind of used that silo space to be the be a garden, and yeah, I I, I, did, I did like that. Yes, I thought it was very, very beautifully done. Um, I thought the costuming was really excellent as well. Um, you know, generally speaking, I, I felt like it kind of supported supported the character. Um, one of the spoilers, actually, that we that people haven't talked about is is Ben Whishaw basically or Q's character basically coming out, which I was very happy about. It's um, almost a throwaway line, it, isn't it? It's a throwaway line, and I and then this comes back to what Lisa was saying before: is like you don't have to qualify it, you don't have to yep. you know make a, make a big deal of it. It's just the way he was. Like, He'll be here in twenty minutes, and that's and it, nobody reacts to it in any kind of way. It's just like. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure we can, you know, work around it or whatever. And it was just very affirming, <laughs> very, very affirming. And I was, Spe- I was, yeah. Speaking of Q, my yeah, favorite really, moment, really my favorite moment of Q was when he acts really badly in front of him, like, "Oh, fancy seeing you here." <laughs> it's from <Dolo> <laughs> and it's like, and he's like, "Knock your shit off!" I know he's staying at your house. Uh, it's just, yeah. I wonder what Q's parents like. You know. <laughs> so Ben. Uh, so for full disclosure, so uh, about a week ago, I sent Ben and Phil an encrypted text file. Have you got the link, Ben? Yeah. With a password uh, I, on I, it. I do. And uh, they, couldn't, they, couldn't, they, could, they couldn't guess the password. And I can't remember what I wrote. <laughs> but I do remember the password. <laughs> you don't know the password? 
No, I remember the I password. Tried... Yeah, chair. It's not. Uh, yeah, all that stuff. Um, and it was my predictions as to what was going to be in the film. So, Ben, the password is. Yeah. You're going to kick yourself. Shatterhand. <laughs> so what I was going to do, Ben, because I can't remember what I wrote. Can you read out line by line, and then we'll see if I got them right or wrong? Yeah, this will be right, interesting. So I, do, uh, I don't. You know, I don't like the sound of my own voice, James. You can do it. Um, and I sent it to both of you, so we'd have like you know, okay, triple lock. The so, uh, Safin going to Maddie's house as a kid in the pre-titles, not being in English, will annoy some people. Uh, that's a that's a that's a very good uh, we, guesstimate. Well, the, the the jury's out, so let's pass that one. Yeah, Kleiman's title sequence has genetics as a motif. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. All right, all right. Yeah, uh, Bond's loyalty to M is what has him come back to help fix his fuck up when the research gets loose. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Um, Q gets the best lines and laughs in the film. Yeah. Well, do, we, do we all agree with that? Or not? Uh, all right, we'll pass on that one. <laughs> that, was a, <laughs> that was the most harmonious. Calvin and I I think there was some good, you know, Book of Mormon was fantastic. Okay. And, oh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, moving on. Uh, Maddie has a kiddo. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Safin is obsessed with her since she was a child. Hmm. I- I'm just thinking that Maddie, Madeline, sorry, calling you Maddie without being being told I could. Madeline here is probably getting used to that thing. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> What's next? Um, uh, Paloma is in the film for less than ten minutes, but survives. Yeah. I think it's less. Like- Roughly. I think it's less than 10 minutes. Yeah. yeah. There's a big stunt, which is not being seen in the trailers. Uh, <laughs> Felix is the sacrificial lamb. <gasps> yeah, cool. Oh, James, this is good. We, we actually talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the genetic weapon may be seen in bad taste by some, even though it was written and filmed before the pandemic. Hmm. <laughs> I haven't yeah, seen yeah anyone really. I, I, maybe that's just because it's nanobots rather than yeah. a virus. You know, yeah, nanobots go body. Advantage. Yeah. Mm. Oh, uh, the Advantage will have some gadgets that we haven't seen in the trailers. Mm. Yeah. No, it didn't. Uh, maybe it did, but they cut it. Mm. Uh, Logan is a rogue CIA guy who tries to kill Bond, Maddie, and Kiddo in the forest. Fuck yeah. me, James. Um, it's Nomi who gets Maddie and Kiddo out safely. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Mm. The ticking clock is Bond getting the doors open for the Royal Navy missiles to destroy the base. Uh, you can get that from the trailer, to be fair. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Um, but, he has to, but he has to get out too. Um, right. Bond carks it a la UL, uh, UOLT. You only live twice. So, yes. Well, for those who don't know their Antipodean slang, that means dies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maddie drives off with Kiddo, telling her stories of Bond. Well, she doesn't say anything, but I think there's a definite inference that she's going to be doing that. 
Yeah. She says, she says, I want to tell you a story about a man named Don James Bond. Oh, she does. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. Don that. Wow. That's remarkable, James. All right. What what Um, we got left? Nomi stays as 007. I guess. Uh, I'm going to give myself a wrong on that one because she hands him the number at the end of the film and we don't know if she gets it back. That's true. She might get it back, though. Or they might retire it out of loyalty to James Bond. Yeah. He died. Yeah. Um, In memory of Roger and Sean in the credits. Uh, oh, I I didn't even look out for that. What, what was was there no uh, dedication? No, 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 I guess it's well. I they in the past it's only been to people who died during production, right? Like it's Cubby and Derek, Derek Meddings. Yeah, oh. are those the only two people? Yeah, but they've also never had a James Bond die prior to this well, film coming that's out. That's true. Right? Yeah, so they had three in this case, didn't they? Mm. The final, mm-hmm. the final prediction uh, yeah. was. Well, it's not really a prediction. It's more of just sort of an opinion. Um, a Reason to Die, which was the original title, uh, would have been a better title. Nobody can say that. I, uh, I suggested <laughs> No Time to Die, so everyone can fuck off who doesn't think it's a good title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David, David did actually come up with No Time to Die before they announced it, so fair play. Yeah, that's true. A month before they announced it. <laughs> yeah, it was. When it was still a reason to die. So Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I'll and, give... and Paloma of a Woman or whatever it was. Or, sent, or Genome of a Woman. I, I'm going to give myself an eh because I didn't know how much they were leaning into the whole we needed time together oh. thing, but which they did. So I guess no time to die makes more sense. It's impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> Something popped into my mind. Sorry to change the subject, but, but you know when I when I predicted like a week ago that it would be like him holding the doors open? When, I, when we get to, got to see it, I honestly think they were going to do a callback to a view to a kill and he was going to have to hold the clutch down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than stand up there looking all somber at the audience like, see you later, guys. Um, I thought it would be like a, a Mayday thing with yeah. the clutch. Yep. Did she, have I- a, did she have a clutch or was it a purse? <laughs> but I mean it does it does raise the question as to would that then change your or my feeling about the ending cuz like the ending I was just like what is he doing versus like dying to save the world is very different than like I could jump off this this thing but I'm not um so yeah I don't know if I would have felt differently if he would have died in like doing a heroic action versus just sort of talking to Madeline well, I think they were trying to have their cake and eat it too, because, but I, I was a bit mm-hmm. lost um, on what the, the ticking clock was necessarily as to why he had to. they had to launch the missiles then, yeah. right? and, and he had to be there to open up the thing, because it's like, well, why don't you just ask Nomi to come back and pick you up and then maybe come back with more of a team that can dispose of it? But I know that there's, there's something about Safins has these boats coming to collect the things and yeah, then but there's, there's nobody there's nobody left working the docks, yeah. right? So, I mean, and it's like, yeah. yeah, Bond, you, you, you can live in quarantine for a couple of years and wear a face mask and and <laughs> you, you, you wash your hands with gel and it'll be all right. <laughs> but this is this is my main problem with the ending, really, because like I'm I'm not against the concept and uh, being a fanboy. That's you know I, we're going to be talking about this particular development for a, a long time, and I think some people are just going to respond to, oh well, you're just you know too precious about it, too close to it, and you just would have hated it no matter what. But it is because all of the various reasonings, like in those last ten minutes, kind of contrive to make you think it's in that 
place where it could be satisfying and it just really isn't um and to, so to your point lisa i think if it was more of like a heroic thing that i yeah i, I maybe would have bought that a bit more um mm-hmm. it, it was just weird it didn't quite feel like a self-sacrifice it felt more like a suicide really yeah. um and that was just a bit yeah I, depressing I think, I think james predicted this as well didn't you james back in february 2020 yeah, yeah bond, bond would kill himself to save a kid yeah it was my big bold prediction yeah, that, it wouldn't, that it wouldn't actually be to save the world it would be to save the kid mm-hmm. um which i think is again uh you know either they should never hire you as a screenwriter or they should always hire you as a yeah but i ended that prediction with by saying they'd never fucking do it <laughs> so i was wrong no? i was okay. right and wrong at the same time <laughs> like because you was- know you, you see yeah I was just going to say, I was going to say impressive in a Darth Vader voice, but James would have no idea what I'm talking about anyway. <laughs> Most, impressive. <laughs> Most impressive. Yeah. Um, no, he wouldn't, would he? <laughs> no, he would have no clue I, what we're talking I even about. wrote a, um, a comparison to uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back in my review, and uh, James went, right. this was great, apart from this bit that I didn't, I didn't get. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Any um, last thoughts? Because I've got to edit this today and it's two hours. I, I'm looking forward to seeing it again, to be honest with you. Uh, I think I do need to kind of ruminate on some of some of this stuff. Mm. No, I mean, as I said, Ben, like hearing your thoughts about it on the last mm-hmm. podcast really gave me some good stuff to think about going into that second viewing because I think I, I had to remind myself that, no, I, I were really enjoying it for about Ooh. two hours, 15 minutes. And then it was just yeah. that last bit. But because it is such a, huge thing to end on it it's oh. hard to yeah remember those positive things so um i got a lot out of the second viewing and i think i sort of was able to compartmentalize my feelings to actually i really love most of this just except yeah. that ending really it left uh, a bitter taste i think that's probably like the, the the ending to it and i think i'm in the same place where you know i literally finished it when we were starting to record and i've got a mm. lot of emotions to process when it comes to it but i will say this you know i'm going to go back i'm going to watch it at least a couple more times in order to get a better sense and and to re um remind myself of what happened beforehand because sometimes with something so dramatic or traumatic depending on how you want to look at it at the end of a film sometimes that's the only thing that you can really see but i think there's a lot here when it comes to aspects of representation actually one thing that i think is really interesting that we really haven't touched on is inspector one of the things i liked about specter was this questioning of the 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 double o program you know do we need the double o program when we have um all of this like mass security or these the, this surveillance global stuff and we can just kill people with drones, right? right? And, you know, James Bond's like, yeah, actually we do need somebody who can like, you know, make those hard decisions. And I thought it was interesting that this was just like another level of that where it was like, do we need people, again, in the double O program and yet you have Mallory who runs it trying to create a way to go off and create a, a, a technology, um, a bioweapon, I guess, that would kill people and that would then make the double O section redundant. And so it is that question of like, do you still need James Bond? And really at the end of the day, most films say yes, emphatically, like the world's changed. And these last two films are like, do we need double O agents in general? So it's interesting that a, a, a film in which Bond dies is questioning less, do we need James Bond to save the world, but do we need the double O section in a general sense? So I thought that was really interesting. 
Lisa, it's interesting that you bring that up, and I genuinely hadn't considered this before, but Mallory's speech to to C, or you know, M's speech to C at the end when he's talking about, like, you've never had to kill anybody, you've never had to, had to make that, that difficult decision, and it's not all about drones, and, and it seems so interesting that he would then, you know, take that particular stan- stance, right, mm-hmm. and then... Dude, well, the, 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 this is where the lack of uh, of thinking about the series uh, as a uh, thinking about the series in the future it just it, it falls apart because every film it they just they just write it. Um, yeah, why would he? Why would he do something that he no. wholeheartedly disagreed with yeah. in in a previous absolutely, film? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. 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 And and was demonstrably not going to work. So yeah, I just, it's, it does seem remarkable that he would he he would do that. But one thing I, I kind of will touch on is is, is sort of what what Elise was saying is is that actually when you and and Calvin to a degree is when when we are discussing these things on these podcasts, I help I think it helps to to to, to coalesce and 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 to to, to refine our opinions. On how we feel about these, these films, and um, my 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 dog agrees, and I, <laughs> I I I I sort of feel like um, you know I immediately when I came out I just wanted to talk to somebody about it, and I wanted to talk to to you guys really because I knew that you would understand and you would you would you would be able to help me kind of guide my feelings so to speak, and. Doing this podcast is actually, and having these dif- disparate and different opinions about it, has has helped me reevaluate and and shape kind of a feeling about this film. And I and I'm that's why I'm extremely grateful to be able to do this podcast and speak to you guys. Uh, I, I I'm the same, uh, Jane. Yeah, sorry, Ben. That uh, mm. uh, I, I when we came out of it and. Uh, you know, and I was talking about it with my wife, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel." And then when I got home, I, I, I was chatting with Phil, and I, and I was still saying, "I don't know how I feel about this," and uh, I, I need to talk about it with with some, uh, some oh. proper Bond fans. Yeah. But I wonder what then that means. Like, it's one thing to leave a Bond film thinking, um, as as Madeline said, like, it's amazing, it's great, it's this, I feel these feelings. But I, I again, through my social media, I've had a lot of people before I saw the film being like, I need to talk to you about this, Lisa. I need to talk to a woman about this. I need to talk about that. Like, there are a lot of people who have a lot of thoughts and need to say a lot of stuff. And I don't know if that's necessarily like a good thing or a bad thing, right? Because people are leaving wanting to have these conversations. Yeah. So it could be a good thing that we're all talking about it, engaging, but we're also coming to it from um, the perspective of being strong fans. I want also want to hear what people who aren't really like well-versed in say the world of James Bond, how they're feeling. Are they going to have, like, I'm interested in what my brother's going to think, right? Cause he's like, I kind of like the Craig things. I might like this film, but he's not connected in the same way that I am. So I'm just wondering after the fact, like what would be like the legacy? What is the general sense of how people think and feel about it? And they, it, it, the general population might be very different from many of us on this podcast. Yeah, I, I I don't really have a, a sense of that at the moment. Um, I, I've 
I, I've had some quite negative feedback on, on Twitter, but n- not much. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that this this weekend after, and after this weekend, uh, I think next week is going to be fairly crucial for it because I think the tabloids will go all out with spoilers and I think oh. they're fucked, basically. Well, it depends on whether or not you think a, a spoiler means that people aren't going to go see it. Because I read some, I, rec- yeah, I, 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 yeah, that, that's a, that's a good point, Calvin. But I, I, I think, I think, uh, I, I say that in a negative way because I think they're going to spoil it in a way that people won't want to see it. And mm. I, I also think that the general public won't want to go back and see it again. Yeah, I, I do know what you mean. Um. I've just I've just realised that um, James has James has said he's uh, experiencing some a little technical difficulty, so he's he's had to uh, to, to leave us, and um, so it falls to me uh, to wrap up this podcast. Um, if that's uh, if everyone's said what they needed to say, um, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, there's a lot more to say, but n- not for tonight. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and after the second and third viewing. <laughs> So it, it um, yeah, it just falls for me to to thank everyone for coming on on board. Um, thanks to uh, to Madeline, uh, to Lisa, Sean, uh, Calvin, David, and James for uh, for, for for doing this podcast. And, and Sean, uh, if you didn't say Sean, did you? I, I think I said Sean. Didn't I oh, say sorry. Sean? If I didn't say Sean, sorry, and ben. Sean. It's worth <laughs> saying again, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> um, he gets he gets he gets two mentions because you know. Um, I, I believe that we're doing uh, a follow-up to this uh, with, with some other people as well. Uh, Phil is going to be on, on that one, and um, so and, and potentially Bill. So I will uh, say um, look for look, look out for that one. And um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Great talking to you as always. See ya.
Time to die